Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home this week. And as you can see, uh, I am joined once again by John Atack, brilliant friend of the podcast and friend of mine, and uh, someone I just always enjoy talking to. John, welcome to my show and welcome me to yours. <laughs> yes, welcome to my show. <laughs> welcome to my world, as Rex the Run says at the beginning of his brilliant. Uh, claymation pieces. Um, yeah. Uh, wow. <clears throat> I yesterday, mm. my YouTube feed disgorged a, a, a recent a video by Roger Waters, um, one of the culturally the most influential people of his generation, the man who wrote the lyrics to Dark Side of the Moon and The Wall mm -hmm. and many other Pink Floyd pieces. Um, and it just incredible perceptive admirable person in in many ways though not if you're in the same band as him apparently there were some troubles along the way yeah but, more than a couple if i remember right yeah but yeah. you know shine on you crazy diamond comfortably numb breathe just money just these really focused things that, that where we think that pop music is largely songs about wanting to hold people's hands or um, how upset we are that they won't hold our hands, actually having something that's intelligent mm -hmm. um, and beautifully phrased. And, you know, the fact that he was then working with three other people who were brilliant probably helped a great deal. But so he's somebody I've admired, apart from the argument that he got into with Pink Floyd, um, over, over, you know, because he sacked them and, and they kept the name. <laughs> and he, he wasn't very happy about that. But he's right. apologised for that. Um, David Gilmore, the guitar player, still hasn't forgiven him. So <clears throat> Pink Floyd's official website tries to make as little mention of, as possible right. of Roger Waters, which leads us very definitely to our subject, which is cancel culture. Mm. Uh, but not only are Pink Floyd or David Gilmore specifically trying to cancel Roger Waters, so is the city of Manchester. Uh, uh, Member of Parliament for Manchester has said that Roger Waters should not be allowed to play in Manchester because he is anti-Semitic. Oh, and I've seen stories recently about this coming out of German press uh, because of the yep. concert that he's doing. He's doing a tour now where he uses evocative, dare we say provocative, imagery to represent authoritarian control or something and it, and it brings in nazi-like tropes and this is well, causing people's heads to explode yeah in in his own little video he shows you a, a little clip from the video of the wall mm -hmm. not the appalling film with bob geldof in yeah but the brilliant concert in berlin um mm -hmm. where he actually he managed to get three members of the band to support him and and just made, i didn't watch it for years because you know i i it wasn't pink floyd you know and it's like what are they doing but then when i did watch it a couple of years ago it was absolutely mind-blowing it's so strong so they're in berlin it's i think a year after the wall came down so about 1991 and they do a concert at the wall mm -hmm. about the wall and i think i remember that didn't they build the wall and then break it all down at the end yeah, which is was part of the 
yeah. the Pink Floyd way of doing it, they build this mass of polystyrene blocks in front of the band. Right. And then when Pink Floyd were playing, David Gilmour said, so the director came up to me and he said, um, how would you feel about appearing standing at the top of the wall and playing a guitar solo? And he was like, yes, let me. You know, Such show-offs musicians. Well, you know. <laughs> it is kind of Thank- in their nature. Thankfully. thankfully. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so... You know, so he's been doing this for 30 years Mm -hmm. and he goes on stage and he's wearing a black leather overcoat. Mm -hmm. He's also got an armband which has a red disc on it with two black crossed hammers. It is not a swastika, Mm. which, of course, would be illegal in Germany. You can't wear swastikas in Mm -hmm. Germany, Um, even if you're a Buddhist and they're a symbol of growth and yeah well the symbols are funny that way aren't they how they yeah uh... it's, a, it's a bit strange isn't it mm. um so we suddenly have this situation where what what he's done is he's complained about authoritarianism and we're into one of those oh well to kill a mockingbird uses the n-word so we have to ban it in our schools and right. going, to kill a mockingbird is an anti-racist text one of the great anti-racist texts and i think that we have come to a significant juncture in culture and let me before throwing the floor open yeah let let me talk about my friend alan shefflin alan is uh, an emeritus professor of law who's done a great deal of work on undue influence and created the social influence model which for some odd reason is is only available in my book, Opening Our Minds, and copied onto Steve Hassan's Freedom of Mind uh, Resource Center website. Um, they didn't get, ra- you know, Alan hasn't got around to publishing it anywhere else, but the finished version of it he gave to me to, to put in my book, which is great. But he's a, you know, nobody has pushed harder to, to make the problems of undue influence, exploitative persuasion, mind control, thought reform, brainwashing. Nobody has worked harder than Alan, a lifetime of it. Mm-hmm. 1963, as a student, I think, Alan went to a lecture by a man called George Lincoln Rockwell. Now, under the contemporary cancel culture, there is no way that anybody would let George Lincoln Rockwell speak because he was the head of the American Nazi Party. Mm. But as a consequence of watching George Lincoln Rockwell speak, Alan came away and said, I'm going to dedicate my life to this, to doing something about this. Mm -hmm. So this idea of let's shut people up, let's stop them talking, it it just strikes me as the most incredibly perverse idea. And I will add another thought, having said I'd throw the floor open. When John McMaster, the world's first real clear, uh, and, and he didn't know why Hubbard had decided he was clear, by the way, when I interviewed him, he had no idea why. Um, I, I was just doing it. And then one day he came along and he said, you better attest, John. And so he did. But he said he got very worried about all of this suppressive person stuff. Why are we meant to run away from these people? Why are we meant to hide from these people? Why don't we sort them out? Why don't we do something to help them? And surely the world would be a better place if we can convert them into social personalities. And Hubbard ignored him. And this idea of you know, let's put our heads under the blankets. Let's not have free discussion and debate. Let's cancel those ideas with which we disagree. 
Yeah. Over to you, Chris. Yeah. Well, I will say um, first that it's the first thing I wanted to make a note of uh, that before I forget is when you brought up, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, I think about, um, you, you know, and how we end up canceling. This happens with me, you on YouTube, where their algorithm will seek out uh, content that is exposing or educating about these kind of abusive practices, like cults, like racism, like sexism. It's, you know, these are rampant problems in our societies. And the YouTube algorithm will seek out educational content and cancel it, you know, say it, it's ban it, say it, it can't be, uh, it's not advertiser friendly is the first line of, of sort of suppressing that content, not letting it be exposed or get out. Uh, to the full, you know, power of the all-powerful YouTube algorithm, um, and or they just don't recommend it at all. Uh, where you know you might as well just have not made it because any you know you'd have to specifically be looking for it to find it, or they just take it down entirely and cancel your channel. And I've seen abuses of every one of those levels uh, taken against educational channels and channels that are trying to expose and educate about this sort of thing. Um, so we, you know, we're really bad at this. We are really, really bad at engaging with uh, provocative, difficult, even incendiary ideas. Uh, this has been a problem for us for a very, very, very long time. And mm -hmm. it's built into the way we deal with it, even at the computer algorithm level now. I understand the difficulties because I have them myself. I get uh, very, very upset. I have a high willingness to try to talk to people and deal with difficult issues. But sometimes some things people say, especially when they start making it personal, in the conversation and they start ad hominem inning and insulting and, and, and taking it out on, on me as a person, not just, you know, they engage with uh, attacking me rather than the idea. Yep. Ad hominem, um, as you say. Yeah, that really sets me off. I have, I, have, I have triggers, I have buttons on that, right? And I get really, really upset. So I understand that urge to just, you know, cancel, just, ah, you know, blah, blah, block and move on, block and move on. And... Often there are times when you're dealing with people who are not trying to have an honest conversation with you. They're mm -hmm. not trying to, um, you know, meet you at the level of ideas. They are they are just needling you and or trolling your, you know, your work. And so differentiating sometimes though is difficult in the moment. I've messed up on both sides, right? I've 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 uh, I've canceled trolls and I've canceled people who weren't trolling who really were just trying to talk. But I, I misperceived it, you know. So I'm bringing all of this up just to show that even when you are somebody who really tries to pay attention to your emotional state and, and intellectual ideas and the ideas separate from the person, and these, even when you're trying to bring these principles into the, into the, the, the conversation or into the you know, situation, it's still difficult. It's still really, really difficult sometimes to engage with very, very, uh, with ideas that you perceive as destructive to other people. Um, because there are these moral issues that come into play. I think that's where that power and that emotion comes from is, is the morality of it is the, but this is wrong. This is wrong, you know, and I don't want anybody seeing this or learning about this or hearing about this. But the fact is, I guess going full circle on this, coming back to like, you know, issues like Kill a Mockingbird or 
I think about Schindler's List as a movie example of you have got to have the freedom to demonstrate and show visually, audioly, you know, whatever, um, the horror, the bad. You have to be able to show as bad as it gets. And if that's showing or hearing the N-word or that's showing or hearing the levels of racism and lynchings and and sexual assaults and, and the full gamut of awful that people get up to in our history against each other, you know, in order to educate and inform, you have to be able to go all the way. Otherwise, people are not going to get it. And this sort of effort, I think, on the part of cancel culturists is an attempt, I think, from a well-meaning place to try to make the world a better place or model a better world by not going to those depths of depravity and awful. But there's no way around it if we're going to prevent those depths of depravity. You've got to remind people about them from time to time. And there's just yep. no way around that. And for me, the most powerful moment of that in my education and experience was, uh, and I've said this before, was the, uh, was the Turner Diaries, was becoming aware of the existence of, the, of them, just the fact that somebody had sat down and seriously wrote, you know, written them, and that this was a whole ideology that represented a small but you know, very noisy uh, group of people, you know, that, that, that put on white hoods and things like that. And I just, I, I just didn't know such things existed. I knew the KKK existed, but I didn't know this whole race war thing, this whole, like, you know, infatuation with murder on an on a almost genocidal level. It was, it was, it was absolutely mind-blowing, very eye-opening for me, but in a necessary way. Because how, if you don't know what you're fighting, if you don't know the depths of how bad it can get, you will not prepare a response that's adequate to deal with it. You know, Just as one example of why it is we actually do need to be able to see it for as bad as it is, whether, again, we're talking about sexism, racism, whatever ism you want to talk about, communism, uh, authoritarianism, cultism. I mean, the, all of these things need to be seen for what they are. And cancel culture seems to me to be an effort ultimately to suppress that knowledge and therefore reduce our ability to actually meet and fight against it adequately. And there's there's my argument. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. A couple of weeks ago, for the first time, we had a video pulled from our channel. And um, the YouTube said that it was inciting violence. Really? And um, so Spike complained and, and the appeal was turned down. And so she went onto social media, which is how we <clears throat> remedy our problems with the, the uh, tyrants and giants of our world. And pretty immediately got an apology and YouTube put the video back up. Now let's talk about what the video was about. Yeah. Video was about Holocaust denial. Exactly what so, I was just talking about, right? Hmm. And you know, you said that, that you have there are certain things that trigger responses in you. Um a few years ago a close friend of mine, who was a close friend then, uh, told me that the Holocaust hadn't happened. 
And it's not the first time that somebody's done that to me. But this guy was a friend who I really loved. And I, I was shocked. And I spent three days having promised years ago that I would never look at Holocaust material again, because I've got it now. Mm -hmm. um, but I went and I dug out a painful reminder, the video of Bergen-Belsen. Um, I don't know whether there's a personal bit to this, but, but my father was there at the liberation of Belsen. He didn't talk about it, but the knowledge that he was there and that he had screaming nightmares for 10 years after World War II. Mm. Um, and so, and I, I went and looked at Nuremberg testimony and I, I packaged this up for my friend and, and said, you know, the, the idea that the Holocaust didn't exist, you know, that didn't happen. It, it, there are more witnesses to the Holocaust than any single event in history. Exactly. There's something like 180,000 testimonies. You know, the Battle of Waterloo, there are about nine, you know. So, so something happened there that Rudolf Hoess, who was the first camp commandant at Auschwitz at, at the Nuremberg trials, when he was asked if he had executed one and a quarter million people, uh, said, executed and exterminated. Hmm. He used the, his, the deputy commander confirmed this on the witness stand. And, you know, the, my guest, um, Edwin Stratton, a dear, dear friend for many years, um, he listed 23 books about the Holocaust, not about the Nazis, about the Holocaust that he'd read in preparation you know, to understand this problem. And, and that's why I called upon him to, to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Among this is the three volume analysis of how many people died, where this guy actually checked the records throughout Europe and was able to show that 6 million Jews had disappeared from history. Mm -hmm. uh, the assertion is not that 6 million people died in the camps. That's the whole, the Einsatzgruppen moving through Eastern Europe, that, you know, Babi Yar, the, many, many murders that you can see. There's, there's a dreadful film called Come and See about the, the murder of Belarusian Jews. Um, there, there is just so much there to think about and talk about. Mm -hmm. And in a cancel culture, the problem is, I, a problem, one of the problems is this polarization, this I'm right and you're wrong. And I must say that I found myself, you know, I'd spent three days putting this material together. I sent it to my friend. There was no reply. You know, I've been in touch with him a few times since, but um, yeah. he was evidently so upset by whatever had happened between us. And he quite rightly pointed out to me in a conversation that I was angry, which is extraordinarily unusual for me. Mm -hmm. But this idea that, that you can dismiss the deaths of millions of people and i'm guessing that where roger waters has got into trouble and, and he points this out is the same place that i'd get into trouble i think that what's happening at the moment in in palestine in gaza on the west bank in israel it is appalling I, I i think the way that um palestinian arabs are being treated and israeli arabs are being treated is appalling and i think that not from some remote, you know, um, mainstream media point of view. I, I think it from talking to people who've lived there and been involved in this. Mm -hmm. And 
So the, the idea that if I criticize the Israeli government, the right wing government of Israel for its um, for making second class citizens for a form of segregation, a form of apartheid that is functioning in their country, they will immediately say you're anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. And I'm not in the least bit anti-Semitic. You know, that famous phrase, some of my best friends are Jews. Actually, most of my best friends are Jews, you know. Um, and, you know, people that I respect tremendously, like Ira Chalef or, or Stephen Hassan. And Rachel various Bernstein. Other people. Sorry? Rachel Bernstein. Rachel Bernstein, Yuval Laor. That's right. Um, these are, these the, are you know, intensely close friends of mine as well. Yeah. yeah. And so we find ourselves you know, in, in a situation where I disagree with something and there's this black and white thinking, right? If you don't agree with me, therefore you are wrong. And, and that's, and that seems to be the impulsive knee jerk kick in that happens without thinking on the part of any, almost anybody trying to talk about the Israeli Palestinian conflict. Mm -hmm. It's so black and white. It's so you're immediately categorized. If you're not categorizing yourself on one side or the other, somebody else is happy to do it for you and and you know okay let's let's go there i've i've done it uh israel exists i don't mm -hmm. think that it's sensible to try and stop it from existing mm -hmm. but to try and turn it into a uh, a secular democracy which it is not um a pluralistic secular democracy would be a really good idea mm. and having equality for men and women um, and for people who are Muslim, Jewish, or as the, you know, it's said that Israel has the highest percentage of atheists anywhere in the world, about 40% of Jews are atheists. So they're not bound by their religious belief. Um, it's, more, and yet, it's more of a cultural thing for, for them, isn't it? I, I, got deeply into this because I was, I was asked to to co-write a, a chapter for a, a book called Psychiatry and Anti-Semitism, mm. uh, which I co-wrote with, with Steve Hassan. And and I just got confused. It's, what do we mean by anti-Semitism? Mm. You know, let's find that out. So I read um, Shlomo Sand, The Invention of the Jewish People. Um, Shlomo is a professor at, of history at Tel Aviv University. And um, I read, I think it's The Bible and the Sword by Barbara Tuchman for a, for a history of the Jewish people to, to find out what is a Semite, to be against this thing, what is it? Mm -hmm. Now, and what I discovered in, in simple terms, and you know, this goes back a while, I read Arthur Kersler's 13th Tribe about 40 years ago, where he puts forward the view that the majority of the Jews who've gone to Israel have no heritage there. They have no ancestors there. They were part of the conversion of the Khazar people in Eastern Europe, hmm. uh, where Islam and Christianity came up against each other. And there's this country that's a boundary. And the king of the country converts his whole population to Judaism, because evidently that means he can choose which side he's going to go with while his country is the buffer zone. This was a long time ago. This is something like the ninth century. Um, and genetic analysis more recently tends towards the view, and this that's, we're going to get some trolls here, mm. tends towards the view that the ancestors, that the, the, the Jews, uh, the, the modern descendants of the Jews, 
from that part of the world, from Israel and Judea, the two Jewish kingdoms, that those people are the contemporary Palestinian Arabs. Really? That's, that's, a, that's a contention based on genetic analysis? Yeah. Interesting. And if you add the, to the genetic analysis, linguistic analysis, which shows that the Palestinians are a quite distinct group from the other Arabs around them, this too points towards the idea that they are the descendants of the occupants of this place. We have a myth, the diaspora, the idea that in 70 AD the temple was burned down, the Emperor Titus then you know, blew the Jews out across the world. In fact, the diaspora had already happened, that mm. the Jews, people who belonged to this, this faith, had already spread throughout the Roman Empire mm. and continued so to do. Um, so we, we get into confusion. If 40% of contemporary Israelis are atheists, this is not a religious identity that they have. No, right? I, I, that's it's why I brought up cultural. cultural. Yeah, that's why I thought it was a cultural phenomenon more so mm. than a strictly religious one. You can convert to Judaic practices, mm. but I was under the impression it was more of a, you know, sort of lineage cultural sort of genetic thing i guess is is i and i'm and i gotta say straight up i i want to say a couple of things right off for anybody whose heads are already exploding mm. over what you know the very topic that we're talking about here today i, I dare we I, talk I, about these things i know right people are people i get really touchy about this and i want to say mm. for me i know that i don't know enough about all of this to have mm. strong positions as to you know, one side versus the other. I'm not taking sides. I'm on human being sides here. Mm -hmm. I want people getting along. I want things to calm the hell down on all of this. And I know religion is at the heart of a lot of the conflict. I know culture is at the heart of a lot of this conflict. Um, bad acts on both sides for decades now. I'm well aware. So I don't choose sides for me personally. I accept to choose the side of humanity and compassion and let's and can we somehow resolve these difficulties mm. or conflicts in such a way that that everybody can get along better. That's what I would like to see and I and I know there are a lot of people who have very very serious views about how that's impossible and the only potential outcome here is one side or the other has to defeat the other. And I, I, that's not where I come from on this. Um, but I cannot, I have to, you know, um, you know, your knowledge on this is something I'll have to just learn from because I don't, I don't know, you know, all the things you were talking about here today. And, and it is a problem that, you know, if, if we say, look at Russia's current invasion of Ukraine, which Russia tells us is not a war. Um, yeah interesting redefinition there yeah but i was very shocked and i'm going to be public about this I, a few weeks ago i received an email saying that that my very good friend professor alexander dvorkin mm -hmm. who is a professor of medieval history in moscow mm -hmm. had been thrown out of the european umbrella counter cult group fecris uh, along with two other russian correspondents and as far as i can tell from their declaration the reason for this was that he's russian mm. and this kind of idea coming from a group that's meant to have specialist knowledge about authoritarianism to say well you know you're 
you live in China, therefore you support China's policies. Therefore, you're responsible for whatever President Xi does. You live in Russia, so therefore you're accountable. And in Russia at the moment, if you say uh, there is a war in Ukraine, you're sent to prison. Just saying that, and I, I, the figure I've seen is something like 25,000 people have been imprisoned in Russia for, for protesting and complaining. I don't know if that's true, because truth is the first casualty of war. Right. And we are seeing some very odd stories coming out. But nonetheless, the idea that we have to be polarized, it's the first thing that we, we tend to say about cult groups, that, that when you become a cult member, your thinking is polarized. You have black that's and right. white thinking, there's good and evil. That's you know? right. There's no, such, there's no such thing as a nuanced cult member. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Yeah. And despite Ron Hubbard in Science of Survival telling us about infinity valued logic, mm -hmm. it's not something that was ever applied after the publication of that book in 1951. Mm -hmm. It's the will of Ron. <laughs> He calls it the will of God in Science of Survival, but it's the will of Ron. What does he think is right? Let's do that. And that is authoritarianism. That is falling into step behind people when you don't really understand the arguments that are going forward. If we look at the, and I really hadn't intended to talk about this, but it is fascinating. If we look at the conflict that's taking place right now in Israel, then the roots of that conflict are, are incredibly fascinating and largely ignored. Throughout Israel, there are um, streets named after Ord Wingate, which is pronounced Vingate by, in Hebrew. Ord Wingate was one of my childhood heroes. Mm. He was the leader of the Chindits, the British Army unit that went into Burma and fought the Japanese in the jungles. Very romantic, you know. And, you know, as an eight-year-old, I really didn't know. What a great name, though. Ord Wingate. Weird name. And the Chindits, you know, these wonderful words. And they were, you know, they fought. They, they were on the receiving end of one of the worst campaigns in World War II. Mm. What they did was mind-boggling. Mm. As a kid, curiously enough, one of my friend's fathers had been in the Chindits. I didn't learn anything from him because he was halfway around the twist. You know, he had just isolated himself from the whole of humanity um, and lived on the edge of town where there is a darkness, according to Bruce Springsteen, um, and bred pit bull terriers and kept himself to himself. It, it had been such a horrific experience for him. Wow. But what I didn't know about Ord Wingate was there are all these streets in Israel named after him. Why? Because in the 1930s, the Alexander Wavell, who was the commander of um, British forces in the Middle East, and of course, Britain and France dominated all of the Arab countries right through to Egypt um, after the First World War with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, mm -hmm. and imposed terrible, awful, stupid rules on those countries, mm -hmm. um, which is a yeah, really a part of the problem that when we get into the history of oppression that has occurred in those places and the way that the British, the French and later the Americans appointed tyrants rather than, you know, making the world safe for democracy, as Woodrow Wilson put it. Yeah, have to, have to admit got, that's true. 
the house of Saud, you know, the 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 king of Jordan, the 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 idea that in Lebanon under the French, you could vote as long as you were Christian. So Muslims didn't even have the vote there. But in the early 1930s, Ord Wingate was sent to Palestine to train members of the Jewish terrorist groups. And that's what was done. So the mm. British military, who then, of course, found themselves on the receiving end of, of, of this, um, you know, with the, the Star of David Hotel in Jerusalem is the most famous bombing of, of British personnel, where uh, the wives and children of British personnel were killed um, by terrorists. When we take away, the, you know, the the top layer of, you know, I believe in this and I believe in that, and say, well, let's just look at the history. Yes, the reality is that horrors of on both sides of history, horrors are committed. But I, I think Santayana is correct. We are going to repeat these things if we don't comprehend them. And if we don't kind of dial down the amount of rage and self-righteousness that is built into these things. The idea that a spokesman for the, the Israeli government, and I've seen this on more than one occasion, should say, we are here by right of the Bible. We are here because we are the chosen people. And you're going, so let me see. The Welsh have the Mabinogion, and they were driven out of uh, Britain, largely by the Anglo-Saxons in the 6th and 7th century, so long after the diaspora. I think we should give London to the Welsh because, you know, they were there originally. I think what's more, we should expel all the people from North Africa and send them back to Russia. The Allens, the Vandals, the Swaves, all these people that came to Europe. The French, well, we should give France back to the Gauls, of course. Well, of course. Rather galling, rather galling that they, the Franks took it away from them. And all that stuff that Charlemagne did, which is long after the diaspora, right? we should overturn. It, there is no place where you can say, because... I've got this book that I believe exactly that says I'm chosen and I'm better than you. That should not be a reason. Having That's said right. that, I return to my original position. Israel is a reality. So it's now a matter of how do we create a proper and moral state in Israel? How do we, you know, how do we do something about the Russian gangsterism that's moved in there, that, that it became an overspill area? Um, for oligarchs how do we do something good in the world that then that throws us into let's get into real trouble here that throws us into the idea of reparation for the descendants of african slaves yep i'm and told that california has actually enacted a bill about this there is we'll see you know, this yeah so we'll see um, plus, plus the native american problem as well and that, you know. I think the thing is, you have to look at the present. When, when I, I read Douglas Murray's War on the West, which, which puts forward the view that um, there is hatred towards white people. There is this white guilt. There is this sense of... Now, <clears throat> the, the angel of death, as he was called, Mengele, fled Germany at the end of World War II and managed to escape to South America. Mm-hmm. He was, he sent people to the, the gas chambers, which the deniers think didn't exist. Um, 
he chose who would be in, you know, going to the the work slave the slave workforce and who would be immediately killed. That was his job to determine physically whether they were fit to be worked to death or not. He was, by any definition, a profoundly evil human being. So, of course, his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren should suffer for that, shouldn't they? It's only logical. The sins of the father are yeah, of course visited not. unto the sons into the fourth generation. Right. So we find out that his son was four years old when uh, his father fled Germany and spent his life exposing the horrors of his father. And that gives us a little bit of a problem. When we wind the clock back and look to the period of slavery. The abolition, of course, is what, 1863 in um, the final abolition in the United States under Lincoln. Um, in fact, the buying and selling of slaves had been abolished in the US before that. Mm -hmm. It was abolished here in 1807. And then slavery itself was abolished, I think, in 1834 completely. Mm. And the Royal Navy set up the West Africa Squadron, which for some decades, then patrolled the African coast and seized slave ships and released the slaves. The whole process was, um, there's a wonderful book called The Black Joke, which was the name of one of the ships in the squadron, mm. um, written by a, a person who doesn't identify as male or female of mixed race, called A.E. Rooks. Excellent book, very, very nicely, very finely detailed. And you're sort of going, well, <clears throat> a huge amount of British sailors lost their lives trying to stop the slave trade. Mm -hmm. And then you start looking into that period. And that was the thing that got me that, in fact, the conditions of working people the world over were pretty awful at this time. So um, Frederick Engels um, wrote a snappy title, um, The Condition of the Working Classes in Manchester, 1844. So he should have written songs with, with that lyrical ability that he had there. Um, and when you look at the working conditions in 1844, so this is after the abolition of slavery, the complete abolition by 10 years, they were deplorable. If you then look at, say, the conditions of British troops in India, sepoys, local troops, were protected. They, you couldn't whip them. British troops were not protected in any way and some of them were flogged to death. Mm -hmm. uh, very few of them, if any, survived the 20-year period that they signed up for. Nearly all of them died in India. Uh, the conditions were absolutely dreadful. And you start going, well, maybe we're being misdirected here. This idea that somebody descended from somebody that many generations ago should now have reparations. Perhaps we should be looking at this in real time and saying, why, why do we have billionaires? Right. Why are there, there are people who devastate our democratic process mm -hmm. with their money? Why are we living in a plutocracy rather than a democracy where influence is wielded by the likes of, you know, Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates. Elon Musk. Um, Mark Zuckerman. That's right. It, That's right. People, People who, you know, are some of them morally utterly deficient. Oh, arguably, uh, arguably psychotic in some cases. I mean, just absolutely hmm. 
and not, you know, genius level people. There are, this is, um, I gave a talk on influence uh, a week ago about the fact that one of the, uh, out of Caldini's work and one of the points he makes that is undeniable, it's been proven study after study after study, this is not a, this is not a debatable point, is that if somebody is perceived as good looking or attractive, they are automatically assumed to be kind, intelligent, honest, and uh, and forthright, right? They, that like these these character traits are automatically assigned to them um, by you know other people who perceive them. And then when you add money into that mix, especially in the United States, uh, maybe in this is uh, in Britain as well, but certainly here, when you add a great deal of money to that, there is this attitude of subservience to automatic. Kowtowing to the greatness of these people, and you have to disprove that in order for the people who get very culty about these billionaires. Um, you have to actually somehow disprove on a person by person basis that they are not those things, that they are not intelligent, that they are not deserving of their wealth, that they are not geniuses, that they did not, you know, create their own wealth. Uh, you know, we, we can document it, we can show it, and even then it doesn't seem to matter. There is this kind of worship of this, and this has been... Um, you know, summated in various, uh, you know, kind of funny reductionist ways. You know, everybody thinks they're going to be a millionaire. They just haven't gotten there yet, right? Uh, this kind of thinking. And, and, and also that there is a kind of royalty status, you know, that we seem to fall into automatically. This is, you know, you and I have talked at length about the leader-follower dynamics, the codependency of that relationship, that it's a very organic, natural thing for people to fall into this. It seems to be instinctive at some level. But this worship of the billionaire is where things go, you know, really cross lines that are just ridiculous. I mean, I, you, you, I've, I've had long arguments with both in person and on social media with people who just think, um, will will die on this hill of defending the rights of billionaires to exist and how and how important they are and how they're the ones who create jobs. Our economy wouldn't work without billionaires. Completely, completely ignoring the other side of the equation here, mm -hmm. which is the billionaires can't exist without us and without our sort of idol worship of them. So mm -hmm. it's it's a very bizarre thing to watch play out, um, to, to watch people fall into line with this. I, I really don't have a full explanation for why people do this, but they do. And they do it like again and again and again. And this is also part of Trumpism. He's a self-made man. I could be like him. Therefore, I will idolize him. When people have, you know, it, you're, you're having to deny so many facts, you know, a lot of what we're talking about today comes out of our, you know, this, this emotional, uh, reactionary denialism, this like, oh, well, it has to be this way. And so I will not look at any of these facts that tell me otherwise, right? Whether it's about Holocaust, whether it's about Israel or whether it's about billionaires, people just don't want to look at the facts of this when they've already made up my, their mind that this is how it is, you know?
Mm. And which which brings us to that same essential point that we will forever return to, which is the sense of certainty, the yeah. feelings of knowing that William James talked about in Cordonesis, yeah. that once we've decided that something is true, then the cognitive dissonance evoked by disagreement only strengthens our belief. That's right. And to grow up, you know, intellectually, to become adult as human beings means to take responsibility for ideas, responsibility for beliefs. And so, you know, if we look at Donald Trump, Donald J. Trump, realizing that Fred Trump, his dad, was a barbarous and vicious man who was took him to uh, Norman Vincent Peale's church. So he was, Donald Trump is officially a member of a cult group, the positive thinking cult group. Mm. Um, he was pastored into that. He's then sent to military academy because he was a rebellious child to try and break him and bring him in. And the dealings with the mafia that, that are happening behind that, the criminality, the, the way that he developed the Commodore Hotel, for example, and the tax break that he really would not have got from, you know, by I'm, I'm claiming money that's meant to go to the housing of the poor to build, you know, to rebuild a hotel for millionaires. Yeah. It, just crazy mad things, step by step by step. Of course, you can say something very similar about the icon of the Democrats. John Fitzgerald Kennedy, that he too, his father was a bootlegger. Mm. He was a criminal. That's how he made his money. He was withdrawn as ambassador to London by Franklin Delano Roosevelt because he was pro-Hitler. Mm. Yep. So mm. there's his dad, Joe Kennedy, bootlegger, massive criminal supporter of Hitler, who then, so we are told, uses mafia money to get his son elected. Mm. So. Mm. You know, and all that comes around this. So I've, I've hopefully trodden on Republican and Democrat toes at this point, so the hate mail should be just pouring <laughs> in. The thing is how to, to come to some kind of conclusion about this. I, I feel when I look at history that we are largely looking at the history of tyranny. We're largely looking at kings, queens, presidents, people who have engaged in warfare for egotistical reasons, mostly, and have caused devastation and destruction. And when we trace it back, when we trace it back, when we trace it back, we get to an origination of this particular idea, this worship of the leader, which comes all the way from Sumeria. So you're going, you know, three and a half thousand years before a, a young man wandered around in um, Israel and Judea. With, with certain professing certain ideas which uh, form the basis of the Nazarene religion, which when the Nazarenes were thrown out of the temple became Christianity. But three and a half thousand years before that, this idea is put forward that God invests power and righteousness into the king. Mm -hmm. We've talked mm -hmm. about this before. It's not every society, Graeber and Wengro, Dawn of Everything, phenomenal book, one of the most important books I've ever read, show again and again that cultures do not, there isn't a kind of way that culture will always resolve into 
patrician capitalism and then it's the end of history and that's all you need. But there have been societies that were truly egalitarian, truly democratic. Ours are not. Ours are still this strange intermixture of plutocracy and democracy. And so we have these power struggles which are not actually focused on what is beneficial for humanity. They're based upon, I'm infatuated with the leader. I think Tony Blair or Boris Johnson or, or whoever is a super human being and that we should trust them, even though I can't tell you why. I can't explain how it was that Tony Blair, for example, in 1998 in Chicago gave his famous peacekeeper speech, which I believe is, is the origin of the, of, of the second Gulf War. It's mm. not George W. Bush. It's this politician who's got this mad idea, which he shows, puts forward, that we shouldn't just police areas where dreadful things are happening. We should look to leaders who we don't like the sound of and depose them. So, which is why Saddam Hussein came into the frame. And we know now that he had nothing to do with 9-11. It was well, a revenge this, act. And this, yeah. this 1998 speech by Blair sounds like something that's already echoing sentiments that, uh, you know, uh, again, I'm not going to get all into the, you know, into the, all the grisly details of all of this because it goes back decades. But that's exactly my point is we've got CIA operations and, and things have got, that have gone on in South American countries, for example, that, mm -hmm. that, that predate Blair's speech by decades, which echo that kind of foreign policy sentiment is we have interests in this country because countries don't have friends they have interests and so um so we have interests in these south american countries and for our sake of you know our economy or our you know the, the way our capitalism works here in this country we need oil for example so we're going to mm -hmm. make sure we have a friendly dictator down there running things rather than a democracy which might choose on their own to not do business with us or to try to be upstarts and do their own damn thing and, and enrich their own country oh no we can't have any of that no 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 and so we will engage in this kind of foreign policy um you know of of deposing people we don't like mm. and we'll use local forces to do this so it makes it look like we didn't really do that but in fact we did do that and we have iran contra in the 80s we have you know there's so many instances of this it's really an inarguable sort of point that it happened that the arguments happen around how much influence they had and how strong it was and whether it was really good for us or not and it really comes down to points of view because if you take the point of view of these countries it was not in their best interest that we did what we did but we get our nikes we get our gas and we get our tvs because we did these things and this is the and, and the brunt of responsibility for that doesn't fall on every citizen of the United States. It's just, but we could do the favor of at least acknowledging the historical reality of that, you know, and and maybe take some responsibility for that. Maybe try to push in a direction of of can we do this better, you know? I, like that's kind of how I see it. Is not about the blame game so much as well if we can recognize the problem as what it is that our leaders have chosen the, the, these these paths to take to enrich us at the bet at the cost of them 
you know, maybe we could rethink how we do these things. But, you know, that's that's an awful big ask for your average Joe citizen. Yeah, it, absolutely true. And I think we have to start with the history. I, I think, um, for example, the, the film The Report um, about mm. the torture report at, yes. on Guantanamo Bay is, right. is a very, very good starting point to look at contemporary events and say we haven't resolved these problems wherever the quick fix has been let's you know keep Somoza as the dictator in Nicaragua for example or put another you know um, person in you know in the same way wherever that's been put forward as a solution in fact it's ultimately led to a collapse of relations it's led to left-wing governments um, if we look at what happened in Venezuela mm. and the complete catastrophe of one of the oil rich countries in the world that claims to be socialist and has actually been a, a dictatorship, yeah. a, a fascist dictatorship mm. that or, or look at say Iran that in 1953, um, Kermit, what a great name, Kermit Roosevelt. Um, working for the CIA and, and British intelligence uh, deposes a democratic government and puts a man who Amnesty International uh, have described as as the worst figure of the late 20th century, a man who who tortured people will high nil high. Um, I had the interesting experience of getting to know somebody who'd worked in his bodyguard. And, are we are we um, talking about the Shah of Iran? The Shah of Iran, yes. Who was deposed in seventy nine by Khomeini, right? By the Ayatollah Khomeini. Yeah. And that we then see the pendulum swing that if you go in and you, for the sake of democracy and oil, overthrow a democratic regime, you will get something like the uh, Iranian Revolution, where we are now seeing. The consequence of that and iran is it's a fascinating place because intellectually you are dealing firstly with one of the oldest cultures in the world one of the most civilized and developed cultures in the world which is largely ignored we talk about egypt we talk about greece but um because persia was the enemy of greece again this polarization has happened and and so not realizing that they did things like washing you know they they weren't filthy and brutish like uh, Europeans at the time were. Mm. Um, they have the most incredibly sophisticated literary culture, mm -hmm. giving us Rumi and Hafez and, and many other incredible um, geniuses, which was all, you know, when the Golden Horde hit them in the 13th century and Genghis Khan came down, that kind of exploded. But nonetheless, this is a culture which has a, a very strong intellectual reservoir a lot of work on genetics has been done in Iran. Mm. Um, of course, they've developed nuclear things as well, which they're not meant to really. Mm. Uh, we're allowed to, but they mustn't because mm. they'll be dangerous, whereas we're safe. You can trust us with our nuclear weapons. I mean, let's face it, we let India and Pakistan develop atomic bombs. So, you know, the world's a very safe place. But, but this, the consequence of duplicity, deception, um, and sadism, you know, looking at, you know, I do understand why the, what, 17 now is it US intelligence agencies 
Whoa. Why, that why we they, know about. <laughs> that we know about, yeah. I understand why they're upset and concerned about what might be happening in the world, but I think that um, it's like, you know, the movie A Beautiful Mind, where, where we find that a man who was a paranoid schizophrenic actually designed the US defense policy. And, and um, he himself in interviews said, you know, they listened to me. I'm nuts, you know, <laughs> come on, you know. Um, but we got mutually assured destruction. We got domino theory. We got all of these ideas coming out of this paranoid think tank that are then applied. It's very similar to, you know, if you're looking back in history to Henry VIII, um, back in the 16th century, who broke from the Catholic Church because he, he wanted to, to have sex with um, a right. woman who was not his wife fundamentally. Right. Um, and and have her children recognized as his heirs. But he was a vicious bastard. When you look at what they what he did, it's just, you know, yeah, Holocaust. He he destroyed anybody who came up against him. Um his daughter, good Queen Bess, Queen Elizabeth I, who who all English schoolboys love, actually spent more time with her chief torturer than any other court official. Mm. I think that says something about her character. What would happen if you stripped this bit? <laughs> These are some really unpleasant people who've then done really unpleasant things. We have the Dulles brothers in America, speaking of the, the worst people in history, uh, one of whom, of course, was running the CIA. Oh, right. We have all, all sorts of, you know, we've, we've had the, the Koch brothers, and, and they're speaking of brothers and the Marx brothers. No, let's not talk about the Marx brothers. They were fine. They, they, I'm reminded a, there's, of, there's no I'm reminded of, of awful people out there. I could definitely put it that way. Yeah, the Marx brothers are not among them. We love no. the Marx brothers. They That's were fantastic, right. particularly Harpo. Um, well, let me, let, but, let, me, let me ask you a question. Let me interrupt you for a second hmm, here and ask you a question surely. about this. Because, because yes, there are, you know, there are litanies and laundry lists of, uh, of awful people throughout history who have done awful things hmm. across the entire political and geopolitical spectrum from China hmm. to the Philippines to the Americas to the Britons to, you know, Europe to Africa, Latin hmm. America, even Canada. We can find, you know, Canada, any, not Canada. Oh, Canada! Yes, you have your atrocities as well. Yeah, blame Canada. Yeah. Oh, I will definitely blame Canada all day long. A it's South Park, the a maple Park of syrup. It makes people crazy. Anyway, mm. I'm just joking, obviously. But there is no end to that list. There's a laundry list of awful that we can always go and look at. And we have these tendencies within us to uh, to tribalism because we're a great big world with lots and lots of people. And we just aren't all going to get on the same page ever about anything. And that's, that's, the, that's the harsh practical reality of the world that we live in, which creates the borders, which creates the tribalism, which creates the armies, which creates the foreign policy, which creates the atrocities. So I wonder in looking at this, you know, from because you and I are very, you know, we, we'd like to think there were solutions to this. But I was presented with a quote recently by a guy named Thomas Sowell, who which I thought was. Absolutely, I, I've, I've read Sowell, a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. Yeah, yeah. I, I was presented with this recently and I want to and I've been meaning to ask you about this. So now's the perfect time. Mm -hmm. Right. Which is his quote is uh, the grand. Now, this is an economic context quote, but I believe it applies further based on what I just said. 
The grand lesson of economics is that there are no solutions. There's only a spectrum of available trade-offs. Choices have to be made, and it is not possible to do both things that are in conflict with each other. That's a that's about the most pragmatic, realistic statement of the problems you and I have been discussing today that, that exist. It's not, you know, the only way to impose a solution of one side or the other in Israel, in Palestine, in Germany, in America, with our foreign policy or whatever, is for someone with enough power to make a choice. And then by making that choice, they impose anything from discomfort to tyranny <laughs> on the people whose choice, you know, who, who, are, who are not benefited by that choice. Mm. And that's a very real factor in our world these days, and, and always has been, especially when you're dealing with groups versus groups. Is it's impossible to make everybody happy. But what's your take yeah. on this concept? Mm. Firstly, let, let me underline my admiration for Thomas Sowell, who, yeah. who um, is anthropologist, sociologist. He's in that that neck of the woods. It's worth pointing out given the present conversation that he is a black man mm -hmm. and um in the school of um, william du bois another absolutely brilliant black anthropologist um who gave us the phrase the religion of whiteness which i, I rather like in about 1902 he came up with that interesting so yeah um there, there may be solutions to some of these problems. Um, the The idea is is very often polarization is, is the the huge problem of of our society. We have populist movements all over the world now, who are you know rightly disappointed with the political cliques and clacks, the, the people who have determined largely for for their own sake how everything is going to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a, a part of that is this idea of nationalism, that my identity is dependent upon my country. Now, you know, looking at the US, well, you know, you have the Louisiana Purchase, you have the, um, the 1847 Purchase of Spanish lands that had not already been taken from Mexico. Yeah. I was quite surprised to find that Salt Lake City used to be a part of Mexico or <laughs> Mexico as it used to be. Yeah. And there was, a, there was a state called Tejas, mm. which changed the pronunciation of the X in the middle. Uh, one of the, there are only two things that are inevitable, by the way. One is death and the other is Texas. Um, <laughs> That's, uh, Texans will tell you that. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, the idea of national identity what is that exactly? Living in a, a country where, you know, when British people do something wrong, they're called English, you know, and uh, England does this. And, it, you know, a friend was talking to me about the English media. I'm going, there is no English media. There's the the British media. There is the UK media, if we want, because that includes Northern Ireland too. Mm -hmm. But we are riven by descent. We have Welsh people, we have Scottish people, we have Northern Irish people, we have the Midlands where I live, we have the North and we have the South, we have the Southwest, and you will find very different people there. And the idea of, you know, that we belong to this identity 
You know, we've got to do things for king and country. We've got to do things because we belong to this. I was talking to a Republican who, who told me he was, a couple of years ago, he told me he was a patriot. And I said, let's go and look that word up because I'm not sure what it means. And we looked it up and it was like, you'd basically, fundamentally, you'd be willing to kill to protect other members of your nation. Mm -hmm. So it boils down to, and I'm, I'm sort of going, so you told me that you don't like immigrants. So you wouldn't be willing to protect people who've, you know, become naturalized Americans because they're, you know, not and us. yeah, and you're not very keen on Democrats. So you wouldn't be willing to protect them. And in the end, it, it's sort of, why do we consider ourselves to be identified in this way? And Northern Ireland becomes relevant. I, I knew a psychology student many years ago, 30 years ago, who did his dissertation on identity. And he was from Northern Ireland. And he said it was really fascinating that when he asked people in England who they were, what they were, they'd, they'd generally answer with their trade. So they say, I'm a doctor, I'm a carpenter, I'm a teacher, what have you. In Northern Ireland, they'd say, I'm British. Hmm. And of course, that's the one thing they aren't. They're members of the United Kingdom of Britain and Northern Ireland. Right. So these would be Protestants, of course, it wouldn't be among the Catholic community behaviors. But this sense of my identity is that, and you then kind of go, well, who are Germans? When did, you know, Germany's what, 1871, the, the mm -hmm. unification of Germany? It's pretty modern. Italy, there were a lot of states in Italy that didn't want to be part of, of the big country. Yeah. Um, oh, hell, then you go out to something like, I mean, because you're describing quite well small geographical areas with huge differences, just miles apart from one another. You bring up, you bring that same kind of micro, that's a microcosm of what we see here in the United States, which is arguably, you know, nine to 11 different countries yep. <laughs> divided yep. either ge by geographical features or cultural differences mm. and, and vast, vast differences. It's just that the distances are greater because America's so damn big. I imagine India is the same way, broken down into lots and lots of different states, and each one has their own identity. Huge. Huge. Yeah. You can't just talk about an Indian <laughs> and, and speak accurately about that. And I know that much, even if I can't tell you the name of any of those states, I know human nature, and I know how that, <laughs> how that works, right? And so you divide up those territories. I mean, Jesus, the most probably the biggest example of this is Russia. What's a Russian? What the hell is a Russian? I mean, you got 13, what, 13 time zones, 15? It's insane how much territory there is there and the mm -hmm. number of cultures and the number of, of uh, states and independent areas and zones. It's, it's unimaginable. So, um, so, yeah, this point of you know, patriotism and nationalism and what, what does this mean? It's, it, it's symbolic. It's, just, it's symbolic for our, our identity. And I... Where I go is is to a place of like protection and social networks and social hierarchies mm -hmm. and stuff. I think for an individual, that's why it has appeal. But but please carry on. I just wanted to insert my some some thoughts there. Mm -hmm. Absolutely and highly relevant. And it brings us round to this notion of what is Semitic and what is anti-Semitic. Yeah. In its origins, the word Semite is from the son of Noah called Shem. Mm -hmm. You had Ham, Shem, and Jaffa. And um, 
it's a joke that probably doesn't work in the US about Jaffa cakes, so we won't do that. Okay, good. Uh, which is a, it's a kind of biscuit with with orange marmalade and chocolate and stuff, and it's called a Jaffa cake because yeah. the orange marmalade would come from Jaffa oranges, I'm presuming. But the idea is there are Hamites, Semites, and Jaffites, and the Semites are in fact the Arabs, the Habiru or Hebrews, and the Babylonians or Akkadians. They are the Semites. Now the word only applies to Jews. Oh. That's okay. I, I can take it, you know, that words change in their meanings. Okay. But okay. That's interesting. We, Didn't know that. Yeah. So we find that the, the boundaries change and who's who changes, that there's a very um, interesting um, point in, in the Gospels where, where Jesus uh, asks, uh, who touched me? because a woman had touched his robe and she says, I did. And he says, I didn't come to feed the dogs. And she says, but even the dogs may beg scraps at table. And he says, for your faith, your daughter is cured. Now, what you've just heard is the reason that he's calling her a dog, which doesn't sound like a very Christian thing for Jesus to be doing, mm -hmm. is because although she is of the Jewish faith, she is not of the Jewish people. She is a Syrophoenician. She's identified as a Syrophoenician woman. And this was a passage that baffled me as a teenager reading the Bible. This seems to be the most deplorable form of racism. Mm -hmm. And it's, you're kind of going, so if somebody came to him who was a Christian, who had no Jewish heritage whatsoever and wasn't a follower of the Jewish religion, what would he have thought about that? Oh no, how are we to interpret? How are we to make sense of this? The way that I'm reading about William, I'm reading um, John Andrew Collins, one of his books about William Branham and the Branham Ministries, where you find that the identity movement in Christianity, this notion that talks about black people as being mud people or this, this serpent's seed, that there are people, millions of people in the world who believe themselves to belong to some sort of racial group that is somehow superior to other racial groups. Yeah. The reality is our genes still contain Neanderthal elements. Let, you know, so the mix is way too much. What we have are cultures, and then we get pan-Germanism, pan-Slavism, which is what we're seeing with Russia invading Ukraine. Mm. People are ignorant of the pan-Slavic movement, which grew up at the same time as Aryan race theory at the very beginning of the 20th century in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And there are people out there like Alexander Dugin, who you know, talks to Putin and tells him what to think, who are actually putting forward this idea of distinct national identities. What Dugin wants to see, and I had to read whole of one of his stupid books to find this out because he's really not a clear, he doesn't articulate himself with clarity. But when you boil it down, what he wants to see is a return to the time of Ivan, who they call the awesome and we call the terrible, um, that where there are peasants and there are serfs. And that, I don't know how many Russian people understand that this is actually what the, the leaders of Russia want. They want to see a reduction back to, to the ancient hierarchies, right. all caught up in some sort of, well, 
history dictates that we've got to believe this or or I'm part of that. All of the neo-Nazis in the US who actually have Slavic backgrounds and don't understand that A, to be a Nazi, you need a Fuhrer, you need a leader, and they haven't got one. And B, Hitler was, he wanted to exterminate, well, he wanted the Slavs to be slaves. Right. That was the whole idea. Exactly. So you've got somebody who's white and of Polish descent becoming a neo-Nazi without realizing that, in fact, no, they wouldn't be let in, you know. Well, they're, it's, they're it, excluded. It, exactly. It, well, it, that's the word because, it, you know, it's never these guys, these people who have these, you know, delusions of grandeur and these, and these grand plans and, you know, trans, global, whatevers about taking power, they never imagine they're the ones who are going to be the peasants. They're never the ones who are going, okay, so we're going we're gonna to create a whole peasant system here, and I'm going to go be a peasant. I can't wait to get my farm. That's, that's never the vision, right? It's always about elitism. It's always about you know, concentrating power in the hands of a few. And of course, the ones who are putting these ideas forward are always representative of the few. We're the ones who need to hold all the power, see? And it's really sad that this is enabled by all the psychology we, you and I, have talked about for years now of of us versus them and the tribalism and the and the and the dissonance uh, resolution toward yes this is what makes sense because an authority is telling me so and it's so it's so stimulus response it is so like just push people's buttons and watch them walk like little automatons in the direction you want them to go not everybody but enough people that these guys get followings and convince people and people then see the follow the crowd phenomena, again, getting back to influence, where, oh, everybody's doing this. I, you, it's a magnetic pull from your psyche. It's like, oh, well, I must somehow be doing this too. Or if I'm not doing this, there must be something wrong with me. Am I in the twilight zone that I think this is dictatorial and authoritarian? I must be because I'm the only one saying it. So I guess I better go along with the crowd. And this is this is the built-in problem with us <laughs> that I think we're constantly having to push back against or fight back against is, is there will always be these people who want to concentrate power in a small number of hands and and just manipulate events or the the messaging to get people to go along with them. Mm. In Martin Luther King at some point, and I, and I hope somebody in the comments will give me the, the actual quotation, but um, as I remember it, he said the problem with the world is not evil, it is mediocrity. So it's not the fact that a small number of evil people are pulling all the strings and you have the Zionist organized government or, or whatever fantasy people have. It's that people are going along with it. The problem of authoritarianism is more, I think, to do with the followers than with the leaders. There will always be self-obsessed, greedy people who want to boss and bully us around. That's right. Unfortunately, we make leaders of them. And that's the place where I think we have to change. And I think the underlying thought is, well, I'm not clever enough to work it out, but he is or she is and so i'll follow them and the fervor that is built into that the idea that you know we 
you're either with us or against us, as George W. Bush put it, um, which hopefully is not the reality of humanity. Um, that, that people become, again, identified with these values. And so let me insert a value here, which um, comes from the, um, the scripture of the Dave Matthews Band. Mm. Well, I'm deeply deeply in love with and have been for many years. <laughs> and Dave Matthews has a line which runs something like, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong, with kindness as your king, you will reach heaven before you reach your end. Now there is a value with kindness as your king, you will reach heaven before you reach your end. You may or may not reach heaven by doing this, but you certainly won't reach it by any other strategy. Yeah. And so kindness, having respect for other people's point of view, even, you know, as my friend quite rightly pointed out, I got angry with him because he denied the Holocaust. And um, I'm afraid I will if anybody else does as well. It's just that way with me, you know. Yeah. It, it, it seems, I was told off with Sam and I many years ago, my son Sam, it's somewhere that there's a piece where we, we found this, I'd got this book by this woman, which just had these daft ideas in it about color. And a couple of my friends who were counseling, um, former cult members came to me and said, you really mustn't do this. You know, you really mustn't take the piss out of, of these beliefs. Oh, but, but, but they're ludicrous. They're ridiculous. You know, can't I have a little bit of fun while I'm criticizing cultic beliefs and apparently not, you know? Right. So, um, we then published a video, which, uh, is so it's titled not really an apology or something where i <laughs> i defended my right to be offensive to people right but it it we do it's, you know we both know jane mcgregor's work i i'm not sure i thoroughly, thoroughly agree that all of the apaths in the world are ganging up with sociopaths to destroy the empaths like you and me right. i've read lord of the rings you know i think Life's a bit more complicated than that. When they came for the hobbits, I did nothing because I was not a hobbit. When they came for the elves, I did nothing because I was not an elf. Then they came for the dwarves, and that was you and me, mate. <laughs> Gone. Um, the, so I think life is a lot more nuanced. And there we have it, that we should be sitting back and going, yeah, that sounds like a stupid idea that person's bringing to me. How do I check it out? How do I find the authority of a source of information? We've now come to this place where the mainstream media, whoever that is, is governed by, I don't know, little aliens from Hobbiton or, or somewhere, the Markab, you know, I, I don't know where from. This idea that you can't trust anything that's reported by the BBC, you can't trust anything that you certainly can't trust anything that's reported by Fox News, let's face it, but mm -hmm. that, that if you cannot trust any of your sources of information, how are you going to make determinations? Well, I think it's by em empirical, the empirical method, by observation and experimentation. So when somebody comes along, like Isaac Newton says, gravity make thing, makes things fall downward, you get by your apple tree, and you wait and sooner or later an apple will fall and it'll go downward ah so maybe there is something in this idea that things 
don't fall upwards, they fall downwards. And I think we just having that curiosity, having that willingness to stand back from, from what we are being told and look at the information and say, well, yeah, is this a trustworthy source? Is this a person who's actually studied this? You know, we had, um, was it Sean Brook, the guy who stood up at a, a meeting and, and said that anybody that had taken the, the COVID-19 um, vaccination would be dead or sterile within three to five years. Yeah. And he was a PhD from Oxford and um, had published many papers. And we then find that his PhD was, it is a PhD, it's not in medicine. He knows nothing about medicine. I think it was in education. And the Oxford he's talking about is in Ohio, I think. It wasn't Oxford University, the prestigious one. And that sense of what is the authority of this person? And is there another authority who disagrees with them? Let's, you know, that was the great thing I got when I left Scientology. It was like any opinion that had been put forward, where's a contrary opinion? So, you know, we had Adele Davis, who was a complete con artist telling us about nutrition, you know, how to eat right to keep fit and all of this kind of stuff. She finally fell during a court case where it was admitted that you know, the copious reference notes she had, she just hired people to look up every paper on vitamins and list them. She didn't ref, she didn't refer to them. Right. They were, you know, they were just false, a, false citations. They weren't really, yeah. they weren't yeah. really sources that backed up what she was saying. But if you didn't go look and read the paper, you wouldn't know that. And that's a very easy thing to do. I mean, I was mm -hmm. criticized a few years ago by the late Kathleen Mann, who did have a PhD. Um, because she said, as usual, uh, there were no reference notes in the piece I'd written. Now, I take exception to that. Uh, I went away and counted, and there are 1,100 reference notes in Let's Sell These People a Piece of Blue Sky. What's more, a, a grad, an Oxford graduate, and not Oxford, Ohio, the, the real one, um, who is, he's now a professor, actually, but at the time he's on a master's degree, and he said that I, this is one of the nicest things anybody's ever said to me. He said that my work was better referenced than the work of his professors at Oxford. Because I don't just tell you what book it's in. I tell you what page in which edition it is. Mm -hmm. So you can go and check. So when um, a few years ago, Monica Pignotti uh, wrote a comment on a video I did with Steve Hassan, because I'd made a mistake about Quentin Hubbard. I thought he'd done all of Scientology twice, because I've been told that by an executive of Scientology, you know, it should be a good authority source. Dennis um, Ehrlich quite rightly immediately corrected me and said, no, he was meant to do it a second time because everything was cancelled, but he didn't. Monica Pignotti, bless her, added a note, if John's wrong about this, how can we trust anything else he's said? Right. Which I don't think was very helpful to ex-members of Scientology. No. And the answer is, very careful referencing, being able to go and check documents. I had to check whether documents were fraudulent or not. And only one person in the 130 years now since Piece of Blue Sky was first published, only one person has ever mentioned to me that there's a newspaper article in there dated the 30th of February. <laughs> and that just shows you know, I've left it in there <laughs> because I like it. You know? um, but 
it showed that in fact it's a forgery and it was Hubbard actually faking an article to say he'd achieved something when he hadn't. Mm. Um, I'm deeply into the notion of, of scientific history. You know, history is not anymore written by the victors solely. It is not a Mississippi of lies, as Voltaire said. And um, in fact, it was a book on Holocaust denial by, um, oh, what's his name? Is Michael Grobman and oh, Michael, he's in the Skeptic Society. He's written lots of things. Um, Michael Shermer? Michael Shermer. But it, anyway, it's this, this book. Now, I got it as a part of a continuation of, of trying to explain to my um, friend why I'm pretty confident the Holocaust did occur. Mm -hmm. And um, I didn't realize I was going to get a book. The first third of this book is about whether we can trust history. Mm. And it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Mm. This, this sort of, yeah, there, there are ways of, of checking and making sure that what you're dealing with is true. Now, for me, because I had to deal with such an enormous amount of material, you know, get this, there's no World Wide Web. I had to go to, you know, the Montana Historical Society, yep, or, yep. you know, the um, ancient and mystical order of the Rosicrucians who told me that, yes, indeed, Ron Hubbard had taken the neophyte degree. I had to, to go to the US Navy to get the records. And those things are now curiously available on the World Wide Web. That's right. Um, since 1996, as I recollect, because that's when we put them there. So <laughs> it's made it relatively easy. But one of the things that really struck me about authenticity is consistency. That so, you know, when I was, you know, Michael Lynn Shannon had, had dug out Ron Hubbard's uh, grades from George Washington University before he was put on probation there for not being much of a student. Um, and in this sheet, we get that he has an F grade, a failing grade yep. in atomic and molecular physics. He would later claim to be a nuclear physicist. Now, that's pretty good evidence, but I've got better evidence. And that is on the 23rd of September, 1950, Ron Hubbard gave a talk called Introduction to Dianetics. And in that talk, he said, when I was at George Washington University, I got, I failed. I got an F grade in the topic and molecular. Now, right. the amazing thing is that I'd used that material long before David Miscavige actually made it public. You know, I wouldn't have known that he'd actually agreed with me without that. But consistency, fitting things together and saying, well, you know, this document goes against what, what I've read. And, you know, the evaluation that people will have so that there are people who are commenting about Scientology who are absolutely determined to believe that Ron Hubbard created a system that will liberate you spiritually. Mm -hmm. It will give you supernatural powers. It, it will make you invulnerable. It will mean that no disease can come near you. It will mean that you have emotional equanimity, it would mean that you have a fantastic intelligence, all of these things. It doesn't matter how much evidence you produce. You know, if you say, well, here are the claims that Hubbard made about all of the ones I've just said, you could also raise people from the dead and cure leukemia and cancer. 
according to his claims and his books in books that are still published. People still wish to believe this. Yep. Even though it's completely inconsistent with reality that um, right. there are no clears that if there were if there was a single person who had supernatural powers, then they would use those powers to silence you and me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Let me um, yes. read into the record a statement by one of the people that, that, that I regard as a, a teacher, mm -hmm. a great teacher. This is John Stuart Mill. Ah, love this guy. <laughs> and it's from, absolutely, it, it, and, and it, it, his writing is beautiful yeah. and, and comprehensible. Yes. Um, he also, uh, I was having a conversation with somebody about, a psychiatrist friend about Father's Day, because he'd come up with some rather lurid examples from the Greek mythology and the Hindu mythology of, of not being a very good dad. And, <laughs> yeah, they, um, they might have a few examples in Greek mythology of that. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was thinking, actually, that we could make um, Father's Day cards, which are Goya's pictures of Saturn eating his children, you know, right. to show you that this is a bad idea. Uh -huh. Maybe fathers could send them to their children just to remind them. Mm -hmm. But... John Stuart Mill is an example of somebody who actually had a very good father because his father was also a philosopher and, and brought him up to be a, a very decent and tolerant man. In, in, again, it's going to be a quotation from On Liberty where, where he also said that, that a wife is a slave, that he'd recognised this terrible principle and, and he acknowledges that he discusses all of his ideas with his wife who is a great help to him in mm -hmm. doing this. Right. So anyway... He says here, this is from On Liberty, which I think every, every school child should read at some point. However unwillingly a person who has a strong opinion may admit the possibility that his opinion may be false, he ought to be moved by the consideration that however true it may be, if it is not fully, frequently and fearlessly discussed, it will be held as a dead dogma, not a living truth. Yeah. And that's the place, you know, returning to the simple notion of cancel culture, we have to talk about stuff. It's true. It's true. We do. I, I want to not push back. I want to ask you about mm -hmm. something, though, that has been on my mind the last couple of days because it has been on social media and all of that. This business of debating science with non-scientists. This is very specific, maybe, but it has to do with right now. And, of course, this will post, you know, in a few weeks. So this issue will probably have already come and gone, but it won't be the first or last or only time that this issue comes okay. up, which is, okay, so here you have some, you know, person that I'm going to describe, and I, and I this is my take on it. Um, Robert Kennedy Jr., RFK Jr., right, who I consider a wingnut. I consider this man to be, you know, the most unscientific uh, proponent of nonsense I, I have seen mm -hmm. in a very long time. And I don't think he has a real shot at the presidency or anything like that. But he is out there with Joe Rogan right now uh, stumping for debate against a very prominent um, virologist, scientist who, uh, I think he's a virologist, but he's somebody who's worked, you know, very, very heavily and very, very hard on uh, vaccines and on science. Mm -hmm. And and there's this big thing of, well, we'll give a million dollars to your charity if you'll come on the podcast and debate the science of this with Robert Kennedy Jr. And I'm like, 
screw that. Why, why, you know, because of the fact that this is not, uh, uh, there are some things that I don't know are debatable that way, you know, and the point that I've made, and this is what I wanted to consult with you on here or ask you about, my position on this is a public debate over science with non-scientists is ridiculous because they don't understand what they're even talking about or it's not a level playing field but two science is debated it's debated every day by scientists by people who actually bring to the table expertise and findings from studies that they have done or experiments they have run which are run very controlled very regulated activities we've figured all of this out so that they are, you know, the most objective ways we can possibly imagine to do these things. That's what, you know, study design and experiment design is all about. And it's not perfect. It's not a perfect thing by any stretch of the imagination because human beings are doing it. But it's the best thing we've developed. And so when you have somebody who's outside of this field thinking they're going to bring, you know, this litany of facts and pseudoscientific nonsense to it, and we're going to debate these issues... I start having problems. You know, I have a little bit of a problem with that. Um, I think it's a context problem. I think in that situation, I have a problem. I don't think I'm saying by by asserting that that I am against debate or that I'm uh, that I'm somehow pushing back on John Stuart Mill. I, I feel uh, in fact I'm trying to come from a place of let's honestly. Uh, uh, engage in this advice that John Stuart Mill gives us. And let's vigorously talk about these things, but let's talk about them amongst people who actually know what they're talking about. Hmm. That's a position I have. I'm hmm. curious, you know, given the social, you know, back and forth of all of this, some people could agree with me. Other people go, oh, no, no, no. You must give RFK Jr. a platform or you are censoring or banning free speech. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not suggesting somebody take his platform away from him. I'm just not suggesting that we engage in serious debate any more than I would seriously debate a flat earther. What would be the point, you know? So what, what I don't know what are your what's that's a difficult one for me but what's your take on all of this Well having debated holocaust deniers you know the, the um and I'll, I'll tell a story about that I um oh, 35 years ago I, I gave a talk at um the Skeptics Society hmm. at uh, South Place um Ethical Society I think it's called and I was really pumped because I knew this was the place in London where Dante Gabriel Rossetti and William Morris had given classes to working people free of charge. So um, not a great fan of either Rossetti or Morris, but I love the idea that these two highly celebrated artists gave freely of their time to talk to working men who'd probably done a 12 hour day of work before they got there. And, and it, so that there was some, there was a cachet about that. There was something I liked. I got there and ended up giving a talk to a, a group of um, sleeping <clears throat> members of the skeptic society. There were about a dozen of them there and they just had a lovely lunch. And I was there to soothe them as they napped. So uh, skepticism is, is not... <laughs> Skepticism is not as powerful a force in our society as it should be, I think. Um, I agree. And, and, it, and I blame them. I do. Um, the only conversation I remember from that was somebody saying, do you really believe there's such a thing as hypnosis? 
And uh, we won't get into that here. But the guy who drove me up there and drove me back very kindly, he started, we got in the car and it was I don't know, a couple of hours driving there or something. I don't know, an hour driving there, an hour and a half, something. same time back. And we spent the whole time with him having said the Holocaust didn't happen. That was how it started. And I had a conversation with him, as I say, lasted about three hours. And at the end of it, he said, well, okay, I think you're right. I think it did happen. But the numbers are exaggerated. How many times have I heard that since? So I said to him, how many people do you think did die in the Shoah? And he said, about 2 million. I said, that's bad enough, isn't it, for us to say that that was a bad thing. A week later, a week later, I had a party. And at 2.30 in the morning, I came downstairs in my house to find this man in my kitchen saying to this young woman, you know, the Holocaust never happened. Oh, my God. So oh sometimes, God. yeah, discussion and debate, I threw him out. I, I said, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not doing this again. No. You've had your chance. Um, and so I would say that, the, you know, if we look at postmodernism, this plague that has given us the cancel culture, um, Alexander Dugin, who I've already mentioned, the uh, tra neo-traditionalist advisor to uh, Vladimir Putin, he, in an interview, says, uh, you have your postmodernism in the West. Uh, what your truth is not the same as my truth. Well, there, there is a point, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. we're in the West, we have the sky above our heads. In Russia, they don't believe in that. There's no sky. In, in the West, you have gravity. In Russia, we don't believe in gravity. Things fall upwards. There, are, there is a point where this notion that anybody's opinion is as good as anybody right. else's is utterly stupid. Right. But there is such a thing as expertise. There is such a thing as, as information. We can have knowledge. We can have competence. When we take that over to... A polarized debate as to whether people who have no comprehension of a subject should be debating that subject with people who do have a comprehension of it. Well, maybe, but you have to come down to ground level, don't you? You have to say, well, first of all, can we agree that we should test reality through observation and experimentation, that our experiments will come from a hypothesis that we have and we wish to test. Do things fall downwards, for example? The experiment we set up should be an experiment that can either verify or falsify this. It shouldn't be just something that will prove or disprove it. Both have got to be in there. We will then perform this experiment under conditions that are measurable. Mm -hmm. So we will take a, an apple and we will let go of it and see if it falls downwards. And we will do this a thousand times or however many times we want and see how many times the apple falls downwards. And we will staticize this. And we will then have the procedure replicated by a separate team. That's right. And see if the apple falls down for them. And we can get into, you know, are we talking about a Macintosh or a a golden delicious or a Cox's orange pippin. We can get into all sorts of details, but is it viable? The first question, I think, that we should test things, that, that we should see if there's a way. 
And then the understanding that that's all science is, it's testing things, and you mm. go from a hypothesis through to a theory, which is something supported by replicated experiments, and then on, if you're very lucky, to a natural law, such as gravity. Mm. And you might then get a formulation, Newton came up with the inverse square law, to determine what the gravitational force was. And that's great good fun, you know, why is the moon where it is and yeah. what's going on with it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So that kind of discussion is viable, but whether the it, it, Galileo in, in uh, Bertolt Brecht's play, which I think is called Galileo Galilei, and I'm not a huge fan of Galileo, I think he was an awful person, but quite clever. But there's a point where he's got one of these toys called a telescope uh, that they're making in Holland, and he's realized you can point it at the stars. And he's looked at, um, crikey, which planet is it? Is it Saturn or Jupiter that has the Medici stars? Um, somebody's going to hopefully tell me. <laughs> Let's say it's Jupiter. Mm -hmm. And he observes that these moons are moving around the planet. He calls them the Medici stars. And in the play, whether in reality or not, in the play, he gets um, astrologers. Jupiter. Moons of Jupiter. Sorry? The moons, moons, of Jupiter, the moons of Jupiter, Quran. the Medici planets, yeah. There you go. And he, in the play, these intellectuals come to him and, and he says, look through the telescope, look through the telescope, there they are. And they say, no, no, before we look through the telescope, you need to prove to us that this can be so. Because, of course, all the planets are fitted on crystal spheres and they're right. moving round. So if there can't be anything going round them, you know, the moon, the, the, the earth is at the center and the, crystal, the crystal spheres, there's one on the moon, there's all of these are on. And that is the point where discussion becomes useless. That talking about it without having evidence, mm -hmm. without looking through the telescope, isn't going to be very useful. So the grounds of the discussion have to be broadened so that we're willing to understand that science is not a belief system. It's not a set of beliefs that a group of people, you know, go and recite every Sunday or Saturday or Friday or That's whatever right. day of the week. It's a set of investigations which lead to the understanding of theories and, and laws and lead to actual realities so that uh, for example, um, when, uh, I can't remember his name, but he, the guy stopped one of the water pumps in London because he reckoned that typhoid uh, mm. came from this, cholera and typhoid, mm. and the disease diminished. And that led to the investigation of the water and ultimately to the understanding that these were um, bacterial diseases. Mm -hmm. um, and... You know, at a time in history when uh, the founder of osteopathy, for example, ridiculed the idea of germs, or everything that's wrong with you is to do with the position of the bones in your spine. Right. As all osteopaths and chiropractors and McTimony chiropractors know. Um, that little bit of the history has pushed aside. But once we found something out like that, then we can do something about it. Right. When that gets to vaccines, things get really complicated mm -hmm. because um, we go back to the um, smallpox epidemic of 
ooh, the 1870s, and which swept through the world and caused a, a great many deaths. Now, let's, first of all, scientifically, can we be sure it was smallpox? We could have an argument about what we ought to call this disease, whether it was the same disease and so on and so forth. Or we can look at certain numbers. And I think it was Sweden. I think Stockholm decided not to vaccinate people. And the rest of Sweden did vaccination. And you just look at the death toll. Yeah. The amount of people that died from this disease. So you've got some numbers that you can do something with. You've, you've got something that will help you to understand the world and what's going on in it. But I tend to agree with you that that I, I've started calling it megaphoning mm. after last year seeing people who purportedly belong to Antifa. And I have a friend who tells me there's no such thing as Antifa. It's been invented by the hard right. No, there is, um, there is such a thing. They Sorry. claimed Sorry, they claimed they claimed they were members of it. And on the other side you'd got, you know, I don't know if they were proud boys or, or what they were. Mm -hmm. Both sides have got megaphones. They're a yard away from each other and they're yelling F you at mm. each other. Yeah. And I'm kind of going, I think that's where this debate about science would ultimately go. That's right. Without really providing us with much that's useful. I think there's also also Stephen Jay Gould, the, the incredible um academic and, and writer, um, when he challenged Richard Dawkins and said, you know, I think you've misunderstood what religion is, that there are two magisteria. There is the magisterium of scientific investigation, but there is also the magisterium of uh, qualia, of thought, of qualities and ideas. Uh, Robert Piercig in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance separates it beautifully and says, there's quantity and you can measure that, that's science. And there's quality and you can't measure that, so that's a personal interpretation. And while, as with the Daichi, the, what people call the yin yang, that you've in the little white tadpole, you've got a little black eye and in the black tadpole, you've got a little white eye because they move into each other. And so with science, things that we thought we couldn't quantify, mm -hmm. we are actually beginning to quantify. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, things that we were very sure of so, for example, that melatonin causes sleep, that serotonin causes happiness, that oxytocin gives us a buzz, uh, and that blue I light saw, keeps I, us awake. I, I, All I, four of those things yeah. fell last year in meta-analysis. I, I All four still disagree with that, by the way. Um, dis just disagree with? That. Yeah. I just disagree what, what? that we can just cancel all of that and none of it has anything to do with those feelings or emotions. I just don't think that that's a, a responsible thing to say. I just don't think that's true. So, so we, I, so we, the meta-analysis of melatonin. A, a meta-analysis resulted in that. I think a lot more research needs to be done before we just conclude no one knew what they were talking about for 20 years. I just don't think that's a, a responsible thing to say. Okay. Well, Let's let, we're, back, we're now you, talking about I, science. Because you've said that in a couple of podcasts now, and I've just sort of sat here and just kind of went, okay. But I really we, don't we, think that that's true. I just have to say that. I, I just don't think a, a single study is going to invalidate all of It's not this a single work, study. It's, you know? it's a meta-analysis. I so understand. So first, first of all, let's clarify that a meta-analysis takes into account all of the studies that have been done. So we're dealing with hundreds of studies. Yeah which when they are evaluated, 
you first and this is how science should be done this Fair is enough. really important yeah so a meta-analysis first of all considers are these studies valid so for example the mindfulness meta-analysis that was done at oxford um by uh, miguel farias yeah they looked at 3,000 studies, his students, and they found that there were less than 40 of them that had been scientifically done. So that's the first part of meta-analysis, that you have to exclude studies where the design of the experiment was not sufficient to verify or falsify. Yep. Sure. That's the, that, those the numbers alone... Tell me, I'm sorry? those numbers alone tell me I need to look more into that, though, because it, to just say out of thousands of studies, only 40 of them were done scientifically is like, where are you pulling these studies from? Pseudoscience journal number five? Like, what? how does that make well, any sense? I, studies are I can funded and I can, approved. I, can and, I mean, no, you know what I mean? No, 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 no. No, I can I, respond very easily to that, Chris. Yeah. Um, new, sci new scientist, which I try to read every week and have done for 30 years, yeah. um, very frequently carries studies of 12 people, you know, nine monkeys, three mice, or what have you. Sure, these, okay, fair enough, fair enough. These have to be pushed to the side. We then have to look at gold standard studies where, you know, the, the gold standard in pharmaceutical science is held to be 1,000 people in the experiment. Mm -hmm. That then has to be replicated with another 1,000. Mm -hmm. The problem with the melatonin studies and with the serotonin studies and with the oxytocin studies and with the blue light studies is that most of them are too small to be considered. So okay, they're pushed I get that. To, okay, I get they're, that. They're pushed to the side. The meta-analysis then looks at what the results actually were. I can give you the results for one specific study that I read on melatonin. Um, and, you know, I was... I have delayed sleep-wake phase uh, disorder, which was diagnosed. I mean, I worked it out in my 30s that I must have it. It was either that or I was as lazy as people thought I was. But if I sleep from four in the morning till noon, I'm absolutely fine. And mm. I hope I'm demonstrating a certain amount of memory <laughs> concentration um, as we talk. Sure. Um, if you take that sleep away from me, no. And I, I got to that. Yeah. So I was prescribed melatonin and i was in touch with the the i don't remember her name josephine somebody who was the the head of research into melatonin in in one of the british universities she was one of the originators of these ideas and i looked at her work i firstly found that melatonin was completely ineffectual for me okay i had it for i had it for a year it didn't work okay um so, but that's just anecdotal. That's just my experience. Well, exactly. Because I have the exact opposite experience with melatonin. And so, yeah. I, so you say it doesn't have anything to do with sleep. And I go, well, I'm sorry, but my own experience tells me otherwise. And, I, and I'm not, that doesn't refute scientific studies. I'm just, but I have to also go with my own experience and say, well, I can't just deny that. If I take this pill, I am very tired. That happens, you know, and it's happened more than how, once. How long, how long so is I, the onset? How long is the onset? How long does it take you to, to become tired when you take melatonin? About an hour. And, um, and, it, and it affects the sleep in such a way that I still will wake. 
Um, but I will be much more tired. It's much harder to wake up and it lasts longer. And that's been my own experience. And I fully acknowledge anecdotal as hell. I'm not making any scientific claims. I'm just saying it kind of rubs up against my experience when you say, well, it doesn't have anything to do with sleep. When I go, well, it, it certainly has for me. So I, yeah. you know, and, so, and that, so that's, that's, the, that's, that's yeah. definitely the point where we have a, a discussion about the science. Yeah, exactly. But, Maybe there's other factors it, at play there. And I go, Hey, fine. I, you know, Maybe it wasn't I, the melatonin. When, Maybe it's what they use to make the melatonin that's causing me to fall. I mean, there's a lot of and, possibilities. And, and what variety of melatonin are you taking? What, what's it derived Nature's from? Nature's brand, you know. It was a generic off-the-shelf, you know, uh, that I got at the supermarket. Okay, so it's probably a vegetable origin. The ones that are used in, in the studies are... Um, the, the one I received was extracted from cow brains. Oh, interesting. Um, so there's such a wide range. There was actually a study of American supermarket brands, which which was very damning about the incredible variation of quantity and whether they even had melatonin in them. Interesting. So, Interesting. Um, the only one that I know that is licensed in the UK is is a product called Circadin. Okay. <clears throat> and that's the one I took. It, uh, three of my children, uh, no, sorry, two of my children have taken it over the years. Um, I went looking be because I was very interested, you know, in exactly this point, you yeah. know, that, that if, if we don't know this and the best study I could find said that 42% of people had responded to melatonin, 58% mm. had not mm. placebo would be expected to be around 30%. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so something more than nothing, but certainly not a majority of people so interesting that you would want to know then what's up with that and if melatonin is the chemical that controls sleep then why wasn't it working on right. the majority of people and that's now, the and that, and that would be an assertion i would not make is that melatonin therefore controls sleep i would i wouldn't assert that based on my experience hmm. so if we get in into the sleep mechanism and i you know me, I'm an argumentative person. Um, so I, I sat with the guy who is the leading clinical expert on, on sleep in this country, mm. um, who'd better not be named for purposes of libel. And he was diagnosing my two youngest sons, which is how we met. And I said to him that this melatonin and blue light thing, uh, I don't think is the whole story. Mm -hmm. What are you doing about the hypercretin or orexin response? Mm-hmm. And he got quite annoyed with me um, mm. because I was saying, I think waking time is the most significant factor in controlling a sleep disorder, not sleep time. Um, in you know, having had it for 57 years now, I do have direct experience, but I've also had four kids who are all diagnosed with it and mm. seen, you know, basically what, what the idea is that the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is supra means underneath so the thing that's underneath the chiasmatic nucleus regulates nine functions in the human body and mm. that includes your heart rate your body temperature and if your little fitbit tells you you know you're sleeping like this and you're doing that well i'm skeptical about that and i know sleep scientists are skeptical about what the fitbit says but if it tells you what your heart rate is doing you should be able to say, well, when my heart rate goes down for that period, that's the period I'm meant to be sleeping. Yep. 
Okay. So okay. The, the idea that you can adjust sleep times with melatonin, because it's not about simply about falling asleep or something like that, it's that you can adjust periodicity. I disagreed with him. I said, you know, yes, you can fix a sleep cycle, but melatonin and blue light, I don't think are the solution to that. I think a fixed waking time, and my oldest boy, although diagnosed, has decided that he will sleep at a different time. He will follow the, what this professor called normal time. I, I wasn't very keen on being called abnormal. Mm. Um, it apparently, according to Matthew Walker at Berkeley, 30% of people have a delayed sleep wake phase. It's just a matter of how strong it is. Mm -hmm. I would strongly aver that uh, from observation and much of it, that people who are forced to work on shifts will tend towards obesity mm. because their metabolism is being upset and sleep mm. and diet are fused together. That is your metabolism. So I put it to him that, that you have to look at cortisol, which is what wakes us up along with hypocretin or, um, or exin, depending which which name you prefer for these. There are two forms of hypercrestinororexin, one and two or A and B. And with cortisol, they wake you up. And he said, I went to Chicago. This was the point where I knew that I'd annoyed the hell out of him. And I wanted to say, I've been to Chicago too, <laughs> twice. But I knew he was talking about having been to Northwestern, which is the mecca of sleep science. Ah. And six months later, in a follow-up with my son, to my amazement, and you know, and I tremendously admire anybody in authority who can do this, he apologized to me. He said they've renamed the disorder. It used to be called delayed sleep phase. It's now called delayed sleep wake phase because we've recognized that the waking time is relevant. So, you know, I actually have a son who's taking melatonin at the moment and who believes it does what it's meant to do, and it's pharmaceutical grade properly titrated melatonin i really question the idea of supermarket oh sure 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 non-fda approved versions and when i it, it came up my other son is, is 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 having some sleep problems and there was the idea that he needed some melatonin and i had to go you know actually there's this meta-analysis which has looked at all hopefully all of the studies that have been published about melatonin and gone, they haven't proved what, what they have set out to prove. It may be that it's, you know, so with my son who's taking melatonin and telling him this, and I avoided for six months telling him this because he felt it was working for him. It may well be it does work for you. Yeah. But scientifically, it's not working for the majority of people. And it what's blown up and serotonin the same meta-analysis has said oh dear the selective reuptake um of ssris uh, mm -hmm. ser selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors as early as 1991 with prozac it was pointed out that because it takes three weeks for prozac to work it's not directly affecting the reuptake of serotonin the same year there was a study that showed that the um Hippocampus, hippocampi, in depressed people, and for some reason we always talk about it in the singular, but there are two of them, 
uh, hippocampi. Mm. So um, that in depressed people, uh, post-mortem, it was found that they had shrunken hippocampi. One of the things that was first said about SSRIs was they created neurogenesis in the hippocampus. Which now, means, I took it that, which, which, as that was 30 years ago, they'd well, understood that the reason it works is it allows you to grow new cells. Okay. This was an incredible piece of information because up until then, it was believed there was no creation of new brain cells. Yeah, that yeah. In the age of 25, it's all downhill, mate. <laughs> you, you, you're screwed. Yeah, now that, we've got this true. idea that we are all the time creating new cells. And we then got into neural pruning being a serious problem. And now the counter arguments just been put forward that it may be the absence of neural pruning that is causing um, schizophrenia in young people. Mm. That, that is because they're not pruning out enough stuff. Who knows? But neurogenesis becomes vital to this problem. So serotonin in some parts of the brain is a poison. It is not something, you know, a psychiatrist friend of mine said that she stopped prescribing um, an SSRI to a patient because the patient said, give me some more happy pills. And she went, no, th this is not the way to regulate your particular condition. For some people, it is very useful. For many people, it's not. In fact, in the 1990s, the Royal College of Psychiatrists in this country did a study of the prescription of SSRIs. And they said that general practitioners in medicine, 80% of the prescriptions were wrong prescriptions right. because they were giving this drug to people who were unhappy, not people right. who were clinically endogenously depressed, but people who are unhappy, you know, right. and they had a reason to be unhappy and giving them an SSRI was a placebo. Right. So, well, that's where I, that's where that will definitely touch up on something I have said years ago, which I will absolutely re, you know, stay again, um, which is I've always disagreed with general practitioners being able to prescribe psychotropics or things mm -hmm. that are brain regulating when they are not mm -hmm. brain specialists or psychiatrists, uh, you know, the medical doctors yeah. who have then gone on to years of research and work on the subject of mental, you know, stress and anatomy and anxiety and dealing with that. I, I despise the fact that general practitioners in America or in Western countries were given the right to do that. They shouldn't have it uh, any more than I should be prescribing medications to people. They're just not qualified to do so in that realm. You know, if you want to go fix a bone or something like that, a general practitioner is exactly who you go to. But when it comes to psychiatric disorders and, and the specialty of that, uh, I don't think they should be anywhere near it. Um, and, I, and I will absolutely, uh, you know, hold that line. That's, that's a hill I'll, I would die on Yeah, for that exact reason, because they don't know what they're doing. And you get results like that, where 80% of the people they're prescribing shouldn't be prescribed that. Their mm -hmm. problem is something else. Yeah. yeah. And we, we have that problem in, in the whole field of medicine. Yeah. That until the 1940s, there, you know, gold standard tests were not being done. Of yeah. medicines yeah. we then had the whole process hijacked by the pharmaceutical industry partly because the tests have to be so stringent that it costs a billion dollars to launch a new medicine right and so you've got to have a profit motive when cannabis was 
you know, has repeatedly been put forward as medicine. In the 1940s, an extract called Synhexyl was taken from cannabis. And one of Britain's leading specialists on depression said, we finally found something that's useful that works. This is around the time the tricyclics will come along, um, which have a pretty overwhelming effect on many people who take them. Mm. The broad brush effect, it's called in medical textbooks. So he'd found something that he reckoned was very workable, but there was nothing he could do with it because it was an illegal drug. Right. And there was nothing the pharmaceutical companies were going to do with it because you can't patent it. Right. And you start, you know, things start going off to the side and people will start self-administering. And, you know, we're now in this place where cannabis has been legalized for medical use in, I think, 28 states in the United States. Mm -hmm. Here, we actually had to change an act of parliament because there was a ruling that cannabis had no medical benefits. Yep. Yep. We've had that. We've been dealing with decades of that over here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, so you get into this weird area where science doesn't matter and it doesn't matter to the doctors either. <laughs> well, I, you know, you got to say that's true. You got to say that's true. I, um, I think I, you know, I think my initial pushback on this in terms of how we got onto this topic here with the serotonin study and the meta-analysis and stuff is really a kickback against a reductionist conclusion based on this, right? The idea that I'm, that I'm, what I'm pushing back on is not trying to push back on proper science properly done. I'm trying to push back on the, you know, well, we've found now that it has nothing to do with this. And I go, I don't know that we can be quite so hasty in our conclusion or how we describe this, right? I mean, all these people who were studying... It's not not what's been said in the meta-analysis. What's been said is we don't know what it does. And that's Not it has nothing to do with, but we don't know anymore. And things that we have concluded with such certainty and which people have have relied upon, um, it proves... And and when you're talking about meta-analysis rather than a single study looking at something, if you have indeed... um, the example I give is various, which I have to hand. Um, this book, The Buddha Pill. Um, he's a, um, the editor of the Oxford Handbook of Meditation. So he's a leading expert on mindfulness. And this is a book about mindfulness, about meditation. Um, so let me, let me find the, um, if I sure. can, yeah. the specific passage. Um, yeah, because there's a big wide difference between, um, you know, we have found this does nothing and we have found we're not. Well, quite I've sure not at any point said we have found this you know. does nothing. Chris. Well, I've you kind of said that and that was kind of where I was pushing back on. Because If you can point it out to me, then, then I'd be interested to hear because my understanding of the meta-analysis is we don't know what it does. And that's, but, a, and that's a statement that I can go, okay. Good. Hmm. Let's look further in. Let's look. Uh, what, what is that? You don't know what it does, but we have hints or we have ideas or we have something. I mean, it's doing something. And that's different oh. from nothing. And that, that was, and right or wrong, good or bad, that was the impression I was getting from what you've said multiple times here. And if I'm wrong about that, fine. But that was the impression I was getting. And so that's well, why uh, I brought this up. Certainly, you, if, you know. if you or anybody else can find a record of me saying that, then, then I will apologize for having misspoken. Otherwise, I think you'd better go and stand in the corner of the room with a pointy hat on. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, it, you know, and it, it we do. Um, yeah, we, we have uh, Farius, who is a mindfulness practitioner. Even after writing this book, he continues to practice meditation. Um, he says, I felt dismayed despite the anecdotal evidence on the merits of mindfulness meditation, despite the hundreds of studies produced in the last 20 years, there was no robust scientific evidence that mindfulness has any substantial effect on our minds and behaviors. It was strange to come to this conclusion. I'd grown up believing in mind over body effects and that meditation was the queen of techniques when it came to personal change. As an undergraduate, I tenaciously defended meditation's therapeutic value at a behavioral psychology class. With hindsight, I now acknowledge that old fashioned behavioral strategies can do wonders. Basically, if you want to make people more empathic and compassionate, having them engage in behaviors where they actively help others may be better than meditating and saying goodwill mantras. Ah, and, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and that's my perspective. I'm saying that, mm -hmm. that the value of science is that it is a method of investigation. It's yep. a way of, of looking at things. And I, which is, is why I, I hope I didn't say at any point what, what you've averred I that that, and, and I condemn you utterly for, for that, and, and, and I will be sending people around to deal with you. Yeah, you better. Having... Absolutely. I need to be dealt with. Well, that's, that's see, and what you just read was really good because um, mm. that's kind of where I'm sort of coming from a little bit on this is, is we have our sort of common, you know, sort of look at this or view of this as, oh, well, these are the neurotransmitters and the neurotransmitters do this and this and therefore, mm. and I, you know, fine. If those were wrong conclusions or they were hastily drawn or they were not based on enough science to legitimize their, those conclusions, fine. I've really got no problem with that. Um, but the idea that these things, you know, I think where I was coming from or where my, my, my mind goes is, well, they're doing something. They're not there for no reason at all. And we notice that in certain, you know, responses of behavior, these chemicals seem to be present or doing something. And maybe that's a factor. And maybe conclusions were drawn that they're too much of a factor or they're the only cause of this or something. And fine, I'm, you know, I'm willing to go, hey, people have definitely drawn wrong conclusions. You know what I mean? I guess I'm just a little hesitant to want to throw the baby out with the bathwater or something like that, you know, and I don't want to go too far with this. And that's where my if, concerns come if, from. You if know? the studies haven't proven the, the assertion, then there need to be more studies. Exactly. Uh, but let me give you a very simple example of, of, and there are a few, of tremendously misapplied ideas. Mm. The idea of the relationship of dopamine to Parkinson's disease. And this was held and billions were spent on research mm. into this idea of how do we get the dopamine system working again mm. then a guy came along and this film of him i've seen it um about ooh, 20 years ago and he was a stuntman who in his 30s developed early onset parkinson's and he couldn't even put his jacket on let alone doing these amazing acrobatics he'd been able to do one of his friends said um have you ever tried MDMA? And he went, no. 
And his friend gave him MDMA. And they've done this, they gave him placebo, they gave him later on. And the transformation is astonishing. Mm. This guy was able to perform stunts when he was under the influence of MDMA, ecstasy, which uh, I think is just being legalized in Australia, finally, which wow. the FDA has, has fast-tracked for use in PTSD yep. in yep. the US, where there's been a successful study. But putting aside the legality and illegality of this drug, it was one of those moments where something that, as far as you know, has nothing to do with dopamine actually dealt with all of the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. It only about dealt with it briefly, but it shifted the whole focus of research. We've now got, of course, research that's talking about mitochondrial decline in the brain being possibly an underlying cause for dementias of all kinds and for Parkinson's disease. Um, that as we get older, we simply don't regenerate the mitochondria in our brain cells properly. I mean, I do, obviously. <laughs> obviously, but, but... Um, and 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 we now get back to this weird idea that that we're meant to be having ginkgo biloba, ginseng, or turmeric in our diet because these are three things that do do something. But it it becomes that you know, in so many questions, if if I go to the doctor in this country nowadays, they'll test me to see what my vitamin D levels are, and they'll give me mega doses of vitamin D because 40% of people uh, in this country in the winter have a vitamin D deficiency. Let's look at science. Right, firstly, it's not a vitamin. Oh, what do you mean it's not a vitamin? How dare you say that, John? It's not a vitamin. It's manufactured within the body and the definition of a vitamin is a substance that the body cannot produce that has to come from the outside, like vitamin C, for example. Mm. Our audience may wonder why it is that you are A, B, C, D, E, Ooh, maybe not F, no G, no H, no I, no J, vitamin K. Yep. So lots of things. And then you've got vitamin B1, B2, B3. All the way to B12. Well, not all the way. It goes to six. Then there's no seven, eight, nine, ten, or 11 because uh... they prove not to be vitamins. Vitamin D is a steroid. It's oh. produced from the interaction of sunlight on the human skin. It's, a, it's, it's the closest we can get to photosynthesis. And there was a study, and this does get frightening, of half a million people. You know, some of the That's size of some of, of the, the, the cohorts now that are being used. So, you know, these studies of seven mice, you know, right. half a million people. And the conclusion was, we cannot absorb vitamin D from supplements. And yet, any, pretty much any doctor in this country will give them to you, rather than saying, go outside in the sunshine for 10 minutes every day. Not that we get 10 minutes of sunshine every yeah, day. Yeah, there country. is a little problem with that in, <laughs> in some places but in the world. Because it's the, ultra, because it's the <laughs> ultraviolet light, the fact that there is daylight out there should right. be enough to, to, to give you enough of a stimulation for that. So I, I think we are living in a time when things that are held to be true are proving to be untrue and that the greatest threat is cancel culture the greatest threat is is saying that's not true because i don't believe it rather than having the discussion about why we've arrived at this conclusion it would appear very possibly that none of our vitamin supplements work 
and, and, that, and that is something that I have uh, thought for years because of mm. my because of my study of MLMs. Because the very first mm. multi level marketing scheme was a vitamin scheme, mm. and uh, and a lot of the multi level marketing schemes are built on that. Lose of, weight now. That's Ask right. me how. That's yeah. right. Are built on that kind of pseudoscience. I mean, the very first one. And in fact, arguably, the entire vitamin craze, which started in the 1920s, if I remember right, in America. It did. 1920s yeah. and 30s, was an MLM scheme. It was an effort to take something that had did nothing and sell it as though it did something. And people went gaga over it they lost their damn minds over this thing and it, and it's been that way for the last hundred years uh in the united states and i guess you know around the world from that and so i when i learned about that I, my whole view on vitamins changed i did not know what you were talking about there with d and the and the the steroid aspect of it and stuff i thought that was fascinating but i was already there on the vitamins or bullshit line <laughs> from a yeah, whole different angle of a research you know yeah, at the same time, you know, the, the vitamins were being discovered and, and marketed. Um, it was very popular in the 20s and 30s to have radiation treatments. And um, these are incredibly health giving, apparently, uh, according right. to the marketing people. Yeah. And so you would get yourself irradiated. Of course, Ron Hubbard was, was a great believer in this in, in 1959. He was he created the ever-bearing tomato. He by irradiating tomato seeds in the comfort of his own home at St. Hill. And and we've got those two great photographs of him interrogating the tomato. That's right. <laughs> I mean, it, it was fine sticking the crocodile clips into the tomato, but the nail was what was relevant. Um and of course he'd not got to the scientific level where he'd understood that the fruit is the one part of a plant that is not alive. It's a capsule. The seeds within it are alive, but it's a capsule. So whether the fruit feels pain or not is, is a bit daft. Then let's just under, undercut this one last aspect of his scientific discovery. He had made tomatoes ever bearing. He had turned the tomato into a perennial plant. Well, it was already a perennial plant. <laughs> tomatoes in the subtropics where they grow are not annuals. They and I've grown tomatoes into a second year, so without irradiating a single seed. Wow. People catch hold of an idea, they do something, and it's kind of sciencey. It yeah. you know, so with Hubbard, this you know, so we all irradiate ourselves and, and that will cure everything. We'll all be absolutely fine. Right. Right. We have we have to be, as John Stuart Mill said, we have to be open to these ideas and 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 look at where they go and not try and shut people up because yeah. you know yeah. they they you know like roger waters you know the idea that this man has done such incredible work to make people alert to um prejudice and bias and racism in our society roger waters had a career of doing this and now he's being vilified for dramatizing this on the stage to show people how bad it is you know this I, I, is how cra how crazy it can get that's exactly right and i think um if anything you know and i'm sure we've said enough incendiary things today about enough things yeah, i hope right? so we should have people pelting oh, us with absolutely. rotten tomatoes uh, yeah, ever gonna... bearing rotten tomatoes <laughs> you know. they're never gonna radiate they're never gonna run out of tomatoes to throw at us uh all year long no there aren't uh, enough <laughs> 
I think, though, that the point here, of course, is beyond any one individual thing we might have said or put forward here that is that is, you know, that you think is off the rails uh, or agree with. Right. We can always put out there that um, that like our discussion here, actually, on serotonin and, you know, uh, SSRIs and neurotransmitters. Our knowledge of things can change, can grow, can develop, and that doesn't have to be reduced down to the, re, you know, the sort of black and white paradigm of it's right or it's wrong. It's like, mm-hmm. how about a progress of knowledge? How about we start thinking about this more as a river of continuous change and, and maybe be more willing to be open to that? That's where my mind goes in response to what we discussed today mm-hmm. is not, you know, oh, well, John just has it so wrong or that I have it so wrong. I'm not walking away with either one Heaven of those. Heaven Well, you know, it's like, how about we're both looking at a progressive changing situation mm-hmm. and our interpretation and understanding of that. And mm-hmm. maybe isn't that how we should really be thinking about science rather than thinking about it in conclusive answers that will always be true. We're, you know, we get really, I I, got to comment on this real fast as we wrap up today, that we really get on a high horse about our own certainty and need for definitive, conclusive answers that are always going to be true. And it's like, you know, could we kind of calm the hell down a little bit? Because maybe there aren't really that many things that actually fit that description yeah and you know? and i i think what's what's just happened is vital that that it demonstrates the process that if you feel that somebody is wrong in in something they've asserted it's good to clarify what's been asserted yes. and as i say you know if i misspoke i misspoke i've, I've now said what i believe to be the case mm-hmm. um so it's important to clarify what's being asserted and it's important to challenge things which just don't feel right and which feel wrong. If we are ever to overcome authoritarianism, which is to say if the human race is to survive, because it cannot survive, given the the political systems we have everywhere in the world at at the moment, we are not going to last another five generations, I don't think. You know, we've reached, we're just about on the edge of the 1.5 degree centigrade move Mm -hmm. in, in, in um climate and we've still got politicians who are going yeah but i want to do stuff that'll make you vote for me yeah i don't want to do stuff that'll cause you hardship because you won't vote for me so the fact that that your grandchildren might all become irradiated like tomatoes is not a problem to me that the problem is i want to get voted for because then i'll be able to do good things you know right um and I, i think that so so what's just happened which is that that we've we've talked with a slight degree of emotion with feeling about things that, that that we've said and we've had a conversation where we didn't degenerate into hurling brickbats at one another but we we came to i came to express what it is i've seen possibly in a better way and we were able to say yeah that goes somewhere that disagreement is the essence of science, of scientific investigation, where you know Barry Marshall comes along and says, I think ulcers are caused by the bacterium Helicobacter pylori. And the medical community says, no, the textbooks say bacteria can't live in the stomach because the acidity level's too high. It took 10 years for that to break through. He got a Nobel Prize for it, as did his uh, mentor, uh, ultimately. 
And they showed that 95% of ulcers, although doctors the world over, I mean, I had nine years trying to get a test for this, and doctors telling me, no, we can shove a tube up you and a tube down you and do all of this. And I'm going, I really don't want that. It's just a little pinprick to, or a breath <laughs> test. You know, can't we just do this? Nine years it took to get the test. And guess what? I had it. <gasps> Amazing. I then had the treatment and something awful happened. My health deteriorated because H. pylori not only loves the acid in your stomach, it wants more of it and it gets you to produce more. Because I have a celiac tendency, my jejunum, the central chamber of, of the small intestine, is worn down from gluten. And it means that the bile part of the alkaline part of my digestion was not working properly. I then took something that decreased the level of acidity in my stomach, which had not actually been a problem. I didn't have reflux. And my digestion deteriorated. Huh. And then we get into science. Then we get into how interesting. More recently, my food guru, Tim Spector, and, and he should be a guru because he does have, you know, the the authority to be saying what he's saying, has pointed out that with many things like Candida albicans, which is overgrowth can kill you, and, and that was a big thing in the 80s where it moved into, it was laughed at by doctors at the beginning of the 80s and then accepted by the end of the 80s that you could have Candida infections that, that were quite dangerous. The balance of Candida, H. pylori, and all sorts of other things is down to your personal microbiome. Mm -hmm. And so something that causes ulcers, the deterioration of the mucus lining of the stomach, burning away of that, in some people, it's because it's overgrowth. It's not because it's there, it's because it's too much. On that point and returning back to vitamins, I was amazed, gobsmacked, when um, a guy told me some years ago, that he took 10 grams of vitamin C a day. 10 grams? Yeah. The Jesus. recommended daily allowance in this country is 180 milligrams. And that, it's a strong acid. Yeah. Asorbic. It, it's, it's, it's not something you play with. So he was actually encouraging ulceration of his stomach by taking something that he profoundly believed was a medicine. Wow. Wow. Well, I can tell you right now that what you just described on the vitamin C thing is kind of rampant in Scientology, too. Oh, absolutely. And he was, yeah. you know, I'm not going to name him here. I've named him elsewhere and insulted him, so I won't here. But um, I, I will say that it took me six months. He stayed in my house for two nights. It took me six months to get rid of the smell of the man ah. from the room he slept in. Wow. Which I'm confident was something to do with his faith in vitamin C. Yeah. Yeah. It's a wild one. Well, how interesting. And again, um, you know, thank you very much, John. For uh, Thank you very much, Chris. Yeah. What, what, what good fun this is. Yeah, I, I, I ne <laughs> it's never a dull moment. I swear That's to God. Great. And I really feel like over the years, our, you know, the, the level of the conversation has just kind of gotten better. I know we, mm. you know, we, in terms of, you know, uh, you guys out there let us know. You know, we go up and down. We're we around, hated it. Stop know, it yeah. immediately. <laughs> Let us know, okay? Because um, I find this stuff interesting. You know, we just kind of start on one thing and, and go and go, and yet it always kind of does 
circle back around to what we were talking about to begin with, you know? Yeah, it's quite incredible, really. There's there's yeah. probably a scientific reason for that. Probably might have, you know, or we might just be able to maintain a, a, a thread of thought for two hours. <laughs> just about. Or just about. It, because we wrote our names down on a slate before the trial began, we can remember who we are. There we just go. About. It's the yellow pad. That's how I do it. It's just the oh, yellow yeah. pad. Oh yeah, my my post-it notes of glory. Uh, that's that's how I get. That's how I keep everything going. All right, well, uh, folks, out, folks out there, uh, thank you very much for inviting us into your home this week. We very mm -hmm. much appreciate it. And um, I will uh, put in a plug here, of course. Subscribe to our channel. Share our work. Um, you know, tell other people about us. Uh, you know, if you want to do me a favor of doing that sometime this week, tell one person, two people. Hey, you should check out that John Atack, Chris Shelton, those guys. You know, they might have uh, some interesting things to say. Mm. Uh, and with that, I will uh, wrap up the show. John, how do you want to uh, wrap up here? Yes, uh, thank thank you very much for for um, sharing your time with us. And and you know, it is this funny position where where we're sitting and talking to people three weeks later. I know. <laughs> And, and, and I, I was really pleased, Chris, that the last thing we put up, you actually came over onto my channel to see what, what people were saying in the comments. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't pleased to find that somebody had annoyed the hell out of I you. I know, which, right? Which they shouldn't do. You know, <laughs> leave him alone, you know? Oh, it's so funny. I had to laugh. I had to laugh. You have to, you can't take this stuff seriously. Somebody, somebody called me Professor Know-It-All and I just, the reason I laugh is because I I know even in my even in the depths of, of of my most depraved certainty and argumentation, I know I'm not Mr. Know It All. I know so little. It is cracks me up. It cracks me up. Mm. All right. Uh, it's true. It's true. Uh, there we go. So thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. Bye -bye. Yeah. Thanks so much.